Pursuant to Governor now. Baker's March 12, 2020 order suspending certain provisions of the open meeting law, chapter 30A, section 18 in the governor's March 15, 2020 order imposing strict limitations on the number of people that may gather in one place, this meeting of the Metro School Committee will be conducted via remote participation to the greatest extent possible. Specific information in the general guidelines for remote participation by members of the public and or parties with a right and a requirement to attend this meeting can be found on the City of Medford website at www.medfordma.org. For this meeting, members of the public who wish to listen or watch the meeting may do so by accessing the meeting link contained herein. No in-person attendance of members of the public will be permitted, but every effort will be made to ensure that the public can adequately access the proceedings in real time via technological means. In the event that we are unable to do so, despite best efforts, we will post on the City of Medford and Medford Community Media websites an audio or video recording, transcript, or other comprehensive record of proceedings as soon as possible after the meeting. The meeting can be viewed through Medford Community Media on Comcast Channel 22 and Verizon Channel 43 at 6 p.m. Since the meeting will be held remotely, participants can log in or call by using the following call-in number. 1-301-715-8592. The meeting ID, which you'll put in when prompted, is 977-5161-7248. Additionally, comments, questions, our concerns can be submitted during the meeting by emailing medfordsc at medford.k12.ma.us. Those submitting must include the following information, your first and last name, your Medford street address, your question or comment. We are here to go into executive session first at 4.30, but I'll have Ms. Member Van de Kloot call the roll. Jenny Graham. Here. Kathy Kretz. Here. Melanie Mc McLaughlin. Here. Mia Mastone. Here. Paul Rousseau. Here. Paulette Vanderkloot here. Mayor Brianna Lungo Kern. Present seven, present zero absent. Um, if we may rise to salute the flag. I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We scheduled this meeting at 4.30 so that we could try to get executive session done in an hour and a half and, and be ready for general meeting at 6 p.m. Um, so is there a motion on the floor? I make a motion to move into executive session. Seconded by? Second. Second. Seconded by Member Rousseau. Um, roll call. Sorry. Uh, uh, Jenny Graham? Yes. Kathy Kretz? Yes. Melanie McLaughlin? Yes. Mia Mastone? Yes. Paul Rousseau? Yes. Paulette Vanderkloot? Yes. Mayor Lungo Kern. Yes, seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. We will now enter executive session. Thank you everybody for your patience. It's 617 and we're gonna continue on with our meeting. We have um, number two approval of minutes of August 17, 2020, which was tabled from September 9, 2020 and approval of minutes from September 9, 2020. 
Is there a motion on the floor? Motion to approve. Motion to approve by member Kretz, seconded by member Vandekloot, roll call. I'm just, if you could unmute yourself, member Vandekloot, you can't. Okay, thank, no. you. thank you, sorry. Um, Jenny Graham. Yes. Kathy Kretz. Yes. Melanie McLaughlin. Yes. Mia Mistone. Yes. Paul Rousseau. Yes. Paulette Vandekloot, yes. Mayor Lungo Kern. Yes, seven in the affirmative, zero in the negative, paper passes. Number three, we have approval of bills, transfer of funds and approval of payroll. Motion to approve. Second. Can I just ask a quick question? Yes, Member Graham. Um, I see there's a bunch of charges for Accelerate Learning and it says things like grade eight online, grade eight hands-on kit, grade eight consumable kit. Um, and I know we were asked a question a while back by a parent about consumables. So I didn't know if anyone could tell us like what these charges were. And I also want to note for the community that there's like, pages and pages and pages of um, readiness supplies for our buildings that we're approving on this um, approval of bills, which, um, you know, there's hand sanitizers, all, all kinds of stuff that um, is about our building readiness. And I just wanted to make sure to note that for the community. Thank you. Roll call. Um, uh, Graham. Yes. Correct. Yes. McLaughlin? Yes. Miss Stone? Yes. Rousseau? Yes. Um, Vanderclute? Yes. Lungo Kern? Yes. Seven the affirmative, zero the negative. Papers passed. Report of secretary? Uh, I went and signed the bills today. Um, there was nothing, uh, nothing of note. Thank you. Report of committees? Uh, doesn't seem like we have any. Um, community participation? Public participation emails, Member Rousseau? Yes, one second. Thank you. Too many windows. <laughs> All right, let's see. Uh, my apologies. While you're looking, I just read the questions or comments can be submitted during the meeting by emailing medfordsc at medford.k12.ma.us. Those submitting must include the following information, your first and last name, your Medford Street address, and your question or comment. We forgot to do this last week. So from now on, we will have a public partition, participation emails listed right under that. So we can always refer to it. There are no new emails, Mayor. Okay, thank you. Thank you. We have reports, report of superintendent. Number one is superintendent's updates and comments. Madam, Dr. Edward Vincent. Thank you. Good evening. The 2021 school year began remotely today for students in grades one through 12. We did hear a lot about um, a number of Chromebook concerns and Molly Layden and our tech department have been hard at work trying to address them today. My hope is that overall, everyone had a good first day back. It is not what we envisioned, but we all, including all of you, 
are doing the very best we can during this unprecedented time. Please know we are here for you. We have been working tirelessly night, day, and weekends to make this transition as seamless as possible. I realize parents often take to social media to let off steam and sometimes voice concerns. However, it is hard for us to respond there if we don't know what those concerns are. So I wanna just ask everyone, if you have a concern, please reach out to your building principal or if you have questions for us directly at central office, please email info at medford.k12.ma.us. This way we can address your concerns as quickly as possible. So I wanted to say, I cannot tell you how wonderful these past two days have been or the beginning of this week for myself and for the entire team to see teachers, students, staff, parents, although brief amongst the many campuses of Medford Public Schools on Monday and Tuesday during the meet and greets. Teachers and staff were able to physically see their fellow colleagues and students were able to physically see some of their friends. This was truly heartwarming for all of us. I hope that all students were able to receive either their Chromebook, um, technology needs, um, instructional books, class schedules, supplies, depending on your grade level. If anyone is in need of supplies, please contact your school building principal. I'd also like to say a special thank you this evening. Our director of nursing, Tony Ray, will probably mention this as well, but the Medford Public Schools received a very generous donation from the community. Many members of our community sewed over 1,800 masks for our students and staff. And we wanna just recognize you and applaud all of you. So we'd like to personally thank Tamar Siegel, Sarah McMillan, Cheryl Rodriguez, Angela Monsell moore Becca Eshelman, Dorothea Lima Gentile, Elizabeth Remick, Faye Collin, Hadley Lagosi, Jane Hamill, and her daughter, Sydney, Julie Parker, Rebecca Gutwin, and Krista Lucas for all of their hard work sewing over 1,800 masks that are gonna be used for all of our students and for your dedication of time. We're truly, truly grateful to all of you. And we wanna thank you, thank our PTOs, which donated the mask materials. The Boston Globe did pick up the story and I believe Channel 4 might be doing a story as well. So on behalf of all of the school administration, we wanna say thank you um, for your sacrifice and sewing the 1800 masks for our school community. I would also like to say with school back in session now, students and families should still take time to get outside and get some fresh air whenever possible. During the month of September, our Medford Family Network will be hosting Nature Walks with Andrea Breen. So all are welcome. The walks are scheduled for Monday and Wednesday mornings and Tuesday morning and afternoon. 
If you're interested and you um, want to participate in this uh, special opportunity, you do need to make a reservation by calling our Medford Family Network at 781-393-2106. Walks are limited to 10 people with social distancing and everyone must wear a mask. This Friday, Rosh Hashanah begins on September, Friday, September 18th, and it goes until September 20th. We would like to wish a happy new year to our Jewish community members. Lastly, I just wanna give a reminder to parents, caregivers, and students, please continue to wear your masks, social distance, avoid large group events, and continue with frequent hand washing. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Dr. Edward Vincent. Number two, we have COVID-19 update report, Ms. Tony Ray and Ms. Marianne O'Connor. Good evening, everyone. How are you? Um, so the data just came through from the state. It was just posted. Um, Medford remains in the yellow. Uh, with a 4.7 uh, incident uh, rate, which is lower than last week, which is a really good sign. Um, and a uh, percent positivity is low at 0.48%, and that's lower from last week as well. However, we do remain in the yellow, um, but we're trending the right direction, so that's great. Um, as of this week, since Sunday, We've had about 11 new cases. We have, we've had 11 new cases as of today. So that's over um, four days, 11 cases. We're right under uh, three, right? Um, the average daily case count would be right under three, which is where we wanna be. We wanna, wanna get under that four level. Um, so that's, that's promising as well. That's good news. And only one of those cases was a tough student. Uh, and I wanna assure everyone that we are looking at the Tufts community, you know, and the impact on our community um, and, and the impact then on the district. So uh, and where that all fits together. So um, that's just came out right now, um, but we are yellow. Um, Tony, I'll send it over to you. Good evening, everyone. First, I'd like to follow up on the um, report that Dr. Edward Vincent did about the parent volunteers who sewed our masks. Um, th this was really the brainchild of uh, Medford High School nurse Jennifer Silva. She saw a post on the Everything is Free Medford um, Facebook page and uh, recognized the need for cloth masks in the um, school. She reached out to a few members of that parent group and then what evolved was the partnership between the Medford Public Schools, the, uh, this parent group of volunteers, as well as the PTO leaders. So I, I just want to acknowledge um, her participation in this, this effort. I'd also like to thank all of the parents who worked tirelessly on sewing, and especially to Tamar Siegel, who um, coordinated all of the group efforts. We, we truly appreciate all of your work and we're very grateful that we can provide um, 
masks to all of our students across the district um, if they need them. Second, I'd just like to inform the, the community of some of the um, activities that the school nurses are doing to get us ready for school. Um, we have been reviewing all the Department of Public Health updates for protocols. The protocols have been updated on a weekly basis and we're incorporating um, all of the updates in, into our protocols. They provided staff training for COVID return to school. And I'd like to give a, sh a shout out to a nurse communication group led by Avery Hines, but also included Stephanie McCann, um, Jennifer Silva, Peggy Donahue, and Brianna Cormos for all their participation in that work, um, work group. They've been connecting families, um, connecting with families about the updated and new immunization regulations and compliance, and connecting with families about their needs for the, the health needs for the school year. PPE uh, supplies have been distributed to the buildings, and um, we are uh, getting them out to the staff. So we, we hope that all of the teachers and staff in, in the buildings connect with your school nurse um, so that you can receive your supplies. And lastly, we've been setting up the satellite nursing offices to manage students who have COVID illness-like complaints. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Ray and Ms. O'Connor. If there's no questions, we will move on to number three, which is the report on HVAC and air quality testing results. Um, Mr. Dave Murphy and Dr. Peter Cushing. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, we'll go through tonight uh, some information related to various efforts that are underway to ensure that our infrastructure and our facilities are where they where we want them to be, and be happy to answer any of the questions. Uh, questions from the committee. Um, these are efforts that have been ongoing for uh, several months, and frankly, predating my arrival. So there'll be, if there are questions, there may be some questions, I'll, I'll do my best to answer, but um, I have to have my, my normal disclaimer as to how, uh, my being new, new to the role. But um, the first thing I, that I think Dr. Cushing and I wanted to stress uh, to the committee and to members of the community watching is that we have no reason to believe that the buildings are unsafe. and we are engaged in a series of efforts and consulting with various experts who are bringing their expertise to bear on the various issues and challenges. And that's attributable to the heightened standard that the Medford community and communities across the Commonwealth and across the country are employing to ensure that our air quality and our, the environmental dynamics in which uh, school is taking place or eventually will be taking place are where we, we want them to be. So um, we're generally using the ASHRAE standard uh, from an air exchange rate uh, perspective, and I'll talk a little bit about um, what that means, but uh, for purposes of tonight's discussion, there are two sets of testing that, we're, that we are doing on the air in all Medford Public Schools facilities. The first is air quality. Sometimes we use that as sort of an umbrella term, but I will distinguish that from the uh, more relevant set of, of tests that we're doing momentarily. The air quality testing was uh, took place by uh, consultant environmental universal environmental uh, consultants UEC um, they completed their work last week and furnished all of their reports uh, for each school facility and uh, but based on a review of those reports there's no cause uh, for concern there were some minor hiccups where they uh, tested the air quality in one school on the day that they had just waxed the floors and uh, needed to go back in after the windows were open and, and it was fine 
Um, but those tests are complete, and uh, as I said, there's no cause for concern. The second set of tests that are taking place are being done by a company that we retained through UEC as a subcontractor, Precision Air and Balancing, are in the process of completing the air exchange testing. That's testing the rate of air exchanges per hour. Um, generally, the standard we, we typically use based on public health guidance is between a four and six range. We'd like to eclipse the level six when possible. And uh, we don't have those reports yet. We're still, those are, they're still coming in. We have some preliminary information about from, from one school, but um, that's, those tests are being completed. They're scheduled to be completed at the end of this week. And we are uh, hopeful that we'll have those reports, although they'll probably uh, trickle in over the next two weeks that at the latest by the end of the month, we'll have all of that information. Parallel to those sets of tests, the air quality and air exchange testing, and again, it's the latter that is the more relevant for purposes of this conversation that most of the public health experts have focused on in terms of wanting to have the environmental dynamics that you have for, to, to lower the, the likelihood of uh, virus transmission. That all has to do with air exchange. Um, parallel to those sets of tests are, is work that's being done at each school facility uh, to look at where infrastructure is in various states of disrepair that need to be addressed um, so that we, we can minimize the amount of mitigation efforts we have to invest in. And so what I mean by that is when we go into a school and we look at fans that are not functioning, um, we see how quickly uh, we can get them to be functioning to increase the air exchange rate. That's work that, again, it's happening at each, each school facility. It's a different level of challenge depending on the building. Uh, the high school, given its age and its the, the uh, unique types of systems that are in place in, in this building as compared to the elementary and middle schools is, is a larger challenge and it's something where we're um, looking at to see exactly what paths we may have to pursue from a, a procurement perspective to get to a place where uh, those uh, systems can be addressed. The outer schools, it's the same thing. It's looking at each of the fans and make sure the HVAC system are where, where we need it to be. And when we can't make the repairs that are necessary along the timetable that we need to make them, uh, we're looking at investments in mitigation strategies by way of HEPA filters and additional MERV-13 filters and seeing what, what of our systems can be retrofitted to utilize MERV-13 uh, filters, which is the, the higher rate of uh, systems that are, are being recommended at this time due to the public health crisis. So um, we have made investments uh, with regard to HEPA filters um, based on the appropriation that the city council uh, authorized either last, I believe it was last week that that happened. Um, and we do expect to procure a large stockpile of HEPA filters that will be deployed based on, as I said, where the HVAC systems cannot be repaired in as timely a manner as, as we would like. So um, those are the lanes of work, air quality testing, air exchange testing, HVAC repairs, and then mitigation strategies by way of HEPA filters um, where the, the timeline is not consistent with, with what we need. Dr. Cushing, um, did, how, how did I do in terms of covering that? Anything you want to add? Uh, pretty much spot on. Um, there's really nothing to add. Thank you. There are no questions. Um, we can move on to number four. M Member Kretz? 
Yes, um, thank you very much for the report. Um, and I was, <clears throat> I just had a question and wanted to know um, if um, in place of the HEPA filters and opening the classroom windows, will that also help with the air, you know, air circulation if the repairs can't be done? Yes, I mean, it certainly would help when we do the air exchange testing, the windows are closed because we want to make sure the air exchange rate is uh, what we would need it to be regardless of the time of year. Um, but it is also definitely true that in terms of just getting the, the rate at, to the recommended level, um, there's really nothing better and nothing, certainly nothing more efficient than just opening a window. We, one of the other infrastructure pieces in addition to look, looking at the HVAC is we're looking at certain buildings uh, and consulting with um, one of our vendors to determine uh, what type of stockpile of uh, window screens that we can potentially procure on, on, a sh on short notice um, to make sure that where that is the more uh, feasible option in the short term we're able to do. We do have, um, it is clear we've got some work to do with regard to identifying um, windows and screens and where those need to be replaced. Uh, but that is, that is something that is very helpful and, and recommended by the experts. Thank you very much. Thank you. There is a question from the public. Um, it's um, from Jean Zotter on Sodenders Street. Um, her question is regards to ventilation. Will Metro Public Schools share the results and recommendations of the ventilation and building assessments with the public? Yes. 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 Um, can we share how we'll do that so people know where to look? Will we be... So uh, Madam Mayor, yeah, once we have all the reports compiled, um, we will create a publicly accessible Google Drive um, that will allow people to access the PDFs that have been sent to us um, once those reports are in hand. Thank you. Um, number four, we have a report on reopening plans for our most vulnerable students, Ms. Joan Bowen and Mr. Paul Texera. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi, good evening. Um, so the special education department would just like to give an update regarding our most vulnerable students and the proposed plan to get students back to in-person, <clears throat> excuse me, services. Um, the Metro Public Schools adopted the follow, following criteria to identify our most vulnerable students based off of DESE guidelines. We went through seven categories and identified students uh, once the students were identified, we um, sent out surveys to the parents to see whether or not that they would access in-person services or if they were choosing the remote model. Um, once we got all of this information, we have started to develop our proposed plan with the students beginning in-person instruction as early as um, Monday, September 28th. Our most vulnerable students represent approximately 10% of our entire Metro Public School population. And we did break the um, numbers down by schools, which is on the chart that's included in the um, school committee agenda item. Um, there's about a total of 445 students that have been identified as most vulnerable. And these includes our students who have high needs on their IEPs, um, they also are students who are on an IEP who could not engage in learning during the remote period. 
um, students who use aided and augmentative communication, students who are homeless, students in foster care or congregate care, as well as students on an IEP identified as English learners, and then our new newcomer English learner students. Um, once we got all of this information together, we are um, having the students follow their instructional day will be um, similar to the schedules that our other students are following. And this is also dependent on staffing considerations. Staff have been um, trained in PPE and will um, continue with social distancing, um, hand hygiene and all the COVID related protocols will be followed for all of our students. Teachers and staff will be provided the PPE and that is being distributed um, to the schools right now. Um, communications with the families have been an ongoing. Um, through the help of CPAC, we've hosted several Q&A events um, to answer parents' questions about the process and where we, where we are right now. Um, and we've shared those um, question and answers in an FAQ with, with the families. And we also have one coming based on our meeting this week um, with Meet Parents. Um, so that's the update for special education. I didn't know if Paul, if you wanted to add anything for your EL students. Thank you, Joan. Uh, you pretty much covered all of the same um, areas that I would talk about. Um, we are focusing on our newcomer students, uh, newly arrived students uh, who would be with EL teachers, at least at the high school or in self-contained classes uh, for the greater part of the day, uh, trying to figure out how we can manage to get students their specials classes so they have full access to all of the educational opportunities that we would provide, whether it was a remote setting or in-person setting. So I've not done as much outreach and communication uh, as Joan has because the reopening of schools has been very confusing to a lot of our families. And until we have a solid plan in place and know which buildings we can use and what that's going to look like, um, I'm hesitant to start sharing what ifs uh, with English learners because I think it will just kind of add to some of the confusion that already exists out there. Thank you. Member McLaughlin? Thank you. I'm going to turn off my video because my Wi-Fi is a little um, shaky, so I'm, uh, that's okay. I'll shut off my video. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to um, Joan Bowen for the Q&As. I know that uh, families have responded that those have been extremely helpful. Um, and I know that you've taken your time out um, and worked with CPAC to do that. Folks have really uh, found that useful. And I'm wondering, uh, Mr. Teixeira, with the LPAC or um, some version of a parent group, whether that could be something that happens once you have a better idea of where things are going for the building, because I, I do think it's been extremely helpful um, for our families uh, of students with disabilities. Um, that, that, that said also, um, Ms. Bowen, uh, just in terms of the July, uh, the September 28th return to school, what are the practical um, applications to that? So if we're not meeting again in terms of the school committee till the evening of the September 28th, I'm wondering how do, how will families get information? Will it be email communications, phone calls, what have you about what the process is for reporting in person? Um, you know, what does that look like practically? 
Right. So I, I did want to say that the um, evaluation team leaders have returned to work. So they're also doing some outreach with the parents that haven't responded to the surveys or haven't responded. So they are working on getting in touch with those parents as soon as possible. Um, we are also in the process. I met with the ETLs and all the coordinators today. We are talking about how um, schedules are going to be created for every student that will be receiving in-person services. They will have a specific schedule with, which tells parents um, what academic classes are, what time they're meeting, when their related service um, related services will be provided. You know, speech, OT, PT counseling that will be clearly identified to parents and it will be communicated via an N1 letter with the schedule, as well as phone calls with from the ETLs to follow up. Thank you. And would you also be able to give us a breakdown for the schools, how many, so I know you said 400 and I think 35 or 450 you were saying for, and just to be clear, that's not all of the students in the district with a disability or an IEP, those are the students that have been identified as our most vulnerable students, our high need students, because generally we're around 18%, right? Correct. So we, we do have a breakdown. Um, did you want me to go through each school or? If you would, yes, that'd be great. Sure. So um, the totals that we have for the Brooks Elementary is 71. The Columbus Elementary is also 71. McGlynn Elementary is 39. Roberts Elementary is 38. Andrews Middle School is around 34. The McGlynn Middle School is 58. The Curtis Tufts is 14 and Medford High School is 120. Thank you, that's, that's and, and the MEEP, and just to clarify, the MEEP numbers, the pre-K numbers are included in each um, elementary school numbers. Right, okay, thank you. Okay, so uh, sometime before the 28th, uh, families will be getting instructions from their ETLs about returning. And then can you, I've been getting a lot of emails um, Known from families whose children don't respond to remote learning at all right now. And obviously, you know, remote learning started today. And also wanted to just thank the teachers and the families and everybody else for getting through the day today. I know it was really awkward to hear my son come down for breakfast and then tell me he was going back upstairs to go to school. It seemed really odd to hear him say that. I'm sure it was a strange day for everybody. Um, and I want to thank everyone for, you know, working together with this. Um, so they should expect some indication or notification from their ETLs before the Monday. And what about our families who are not responding um, right now to remote services? So for example, I had a kindergarten mom or first grade mom, I think today that had reached out to say her student lasted all of two minutes on Zoom and then was signing all done. And um, do we have a backup plan? So right now we are, are, we're trying to get the students in person. What I would recommend is if a family is having difficulty with the remote learning, they need to meet, um, reach out to their evaluation team leader. I think the team may need to want to get together to talk about what's working, what's not working, what are some strategies that can be implemented. And then if it's not working, we, the team needs to sit down and say, this is not working. What is going to work best for this child? It's on an individualized basis. Um, so I think we need to look at what are some alternative ways that we could provide um, in-person instruction, um, can we do more in-person therapies? These all depend on staffing and how many we, you know, students are doing remote versus in-person, but we will take each individual case by case and look at what's going on and try to identify 
um, some strategies to help the families and the students as well. Thank you. Yes. Um, and the teachers. So I think it would be really helpful probably for families to definitely reach out to their retails, but also to be collecting data on what this is looking like for their children, right? So keeping some record about, again, today was a, say, six-hour day. My child participated in two minutes of six hours on Zoom um, and sort of being able to sort of keep a record of that so folks know what that is and what that looks like, I think, would be really helpful for families as well. So reaching out to ETLs, it sounds like, is a really um, good plan. I want to thank you and your staff and Mr. Teixeira as we're thinking about how we physically get our students back in, our most vulnerable students. I know we have too many families reaching out to us um, that have been super stressed. Um, I know we all have been super stressed and, and our families that have children with um, significant needs, uh, even more so, uh, especially not having gotten any services for the most part. Um, for the past several months. So I know it's a priority for Desi and it's a priority for the district. So I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Member Vandekloot. Just unmute yourself. I just wanted to ask whether uh, we have gotten to the step where we're uh, planning for transportation for the students we anticipate uh, returning to school. And yes. we're where we Sorry. are in that? Sure. So um, the Amory who does transportation in my office has been working with the transportation companies. Um, we have a list of students um, for the in-person, our most vulnerable, who require transportation. So we are working on that. Transportation companies um, are aware of the potential start date. Um, we're setting up transportation, but there are some um, new requirements that we need to follow. So it's fewer students on the bus. So we may have to do a couple of runs in the morning and a couple of more runs in the afternoon. Um, but we are uh, proactively working on transportation for students. Since most of our uh, students um, are, might be in small vehicle transportation, um, how many students are allowed in a car? Uh, so it, I, from what I can recall, I don't have the diagrams with me, but if it's um, an eight passenger, there's a driver and three students. So they separate them by bench and one may be on the left side, the second row on the right side, that sort of thing. So it depends on the size of the particular van and there's a limit to how many students. And that's what we're also planning for as well. Uh, are more parents um, notifying you that they'll be taking their own child to school? Yes, so they are, and, and parents um, also have the ability to um, request reimbursement for mileage if it's a, a long distance, um, but there are parents who have said, we want our students in there, we prefer to transport them ourselves, so that's also an option that they can um, opt to do. Um, at this point, are there enough drivers? Right now, yes, yes. Thank you. I'd just like to thank you to uh, Ms. Bowen and Mr. Texera for working hard um, to get our most vulnerable back. I know it's really good news. We just heard that the air quality testing is done and there's no cause for concern. So that's definitely a positive. And I know the PPE has been distributed. Um, the cities, along with Marianne O'Connor's work to get testing for teachers on the 24th. So I'm glad that everybody's in agreement and we can get our most vulnerable back on the 28th. And I do want to echo 
Member McLaughlin's sentiments about just making sure we keep the lines of communications open with the families, whether that's um, from now to the 28th, it's only a couple, you know, less than two weeks, but I'd expect them to be fully up to date and hopefully we, we can make that a reality. So I appreciate Absolutely. all the work yep. you're doing. Thank you. Absolutely. Communication is key. So we'll continue. Okay, so number five, we have report on the Medford Public School draft COVID-19 metrics to inform school decision-making. Dr. Edward Vincent, Ms. Suzanne Galusi, Ms. Tony Ray, Ms. Marion O'Connor, and Mr. Tom Melichewski. Well, good evening, uh, school committee. Uh, good evening, members of the Medford community. I hope that students, staff, and families had a wonderful first day of school today. Um, so, you know, we know that we are starting, everyone starting in a remote model. Uh, with that said, as a district team, we are actively preparing for a potential shift to a hybrid model, and then also actively preparing for that next shift, possibly from a hybrid model back to a remote model, uh, or shutting down a classroom or a cohort, uh, depending on sort of what the, uh, the data and the metrics may say. So, Again, while we're in a remote model now, our district team is actively preparing for those next potential phases as well. Uh, and as a, as a team, I can emphasize that we feel strongly that these transitions should be uh, marked by you know, data and metrics to drive the decision making. So tonight, we're going to present our initial work on trying to uh, talk about our initial work on mapping out if we are in a hybrid model. What are some of the data and metrics that we should be using and should be looking at to then say we need to make determinations around, again, shutting down particular classrooms, cohorts, schools, or moving the district back to a full uh, remote model. Now, uh, we, this is work that we have, have really just taken on as a, uh, as a district now, now that we are, you know, sort of kicked off the school year. Uh, this past week on Monday, we met with a group comprised of the mayor, a school committee member, uh, Tony Ray, Marianne O'Connor, Dr. Sabia, a few members of our central office team, as well as a few community members to help us have this initial conversation again of what would that, what are some of the data and metrics that we should be using to drive the potential shift between different models. Uh, so tonight we're going to share just some of our initial thinking. We would like to emphasize that this is just a, a very initial and preliminary uh, glimpse into what our thinking is. Our goal is that over the next few weeks, we can finalize and solidify this so we can present a finalized version to the school committee that could be approved uh, around the same timeline of us shifting into a potential hybrid model. Uh, so with that said, I'm gonna share my screen and I'm gonna just introduce this quickly and then I'm gonna turn over to, to Ms. Galusi who's gonna walk us through some of the specifics. So uh, as you'll see, this is something that was created collaboratively uh, through a lot of different stakeholders, but is going to be driven by, you know, partnership between the Medford Board of Health and the Medford Public Schools. So we've labeled this as our, our preliminary framework to inform school decision making. I'm just going to quickly read this uh, paragraph here, which I think helps frame um, some of what we're trying to accomplish in the framework that we're putting out here tonight. So um, in consultation with the Medford Board of Health, the Medford Public Schools will review multiple variables and factors in considering a potential school or district closure, partial or full, and we'll get into that. Standards issued by the Commonwealth are the minimum guidelines. I'd like to emphasize that we are grounding all of our, uh, sort of our work here in this framework through the guidance released by DESE. Uh, the most recent data and contextual circumstances will inform individual decisions. 
before a for final decision is made on a school or district closure. I'm just going to reshare that. On a district closure, the superintendent must consult with DESE. So uh, Ms. Galusi is going to walk us through uh, just what are some of the specific uh, metrics that we are thinking about using in Medford as we might make a transition between hybrid and then back to remote or you know specific closures, and also uh, then talk about a few different scenarios that we played out in our minds. Again, I'd like to emphasize this is just a pro preliminary look at how we're approaching this. We know that there are many uh, scenarios and possibilities as we dive into this, and we look forward to diving into that with you all over the next few weeks. But again, tonight, just trying to present a preliminary picture on this. So I'll turn over to Ms. Galusi, who will dive into some of the specifics of our, uh, of our thinking. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Milicheski. Thank you. I was just going to ask you to do that. I think, um, as you can see, he's scrolling down to the framework here for the health indicators. I think what's important to note is this section of definitions. And so as we proceed with talking about some of these scenarios and our reaction or actions to that, we should know specifically what we're talking about in terms of I'd like to draw your attention to the definition of classroom and cohort AB and cohort AC. So classroom um, will relate at the elementary level. So it states that individual class of students who physically share learning space throughout the school day. Um, and then when we're talking about cohorts AB and cohort AC, those are for students at the middle and high school level. So cohort A, B are students who attend in-person instruction on the Monday, Tuesday time. And then cohort A, C are for students at the middle and high school level who attend on the Thursday, Friday days. Um, because you're going to see this language referenced in some of the scenarios below. And I think it's very important to note um, the groupings that we're talking about. So we have just five sample scenarios here that we've been discussing. I'm going to draw your attention to just the second one as like an example. So you'll see the way the scenarios, um, we have the scenarios listed on the left and the key school and health department indicators. Um, as Mr. Milicheski said, in, we are doing this in partnership. Um, the school department with the health department, which, by the way, I think it's important to note that the Department of Education is requiring all health departments and superintendents to keep them informed and follow their guidelines. So that's a very big um, piece in this in the metrics that we're trying to develop. And then the, the last column here are the considerations that the superintendent and her appointed designees will utilize um, in each scenario or a scenario that is um, comparable. So if we look at scenario two, um, it says for the scenario that there was a presence of confirmed cases isolated to one school across multiple classrooms or cohorts. So you'll see the slash there just to indicate classrooms are on the elementary level, cohorts are on the secondary level. So there are two um, indicators. And so for the first bullet point, it deals with, with the elementary level. So it would be two or more conformed cases in three or more classroom cohorts at the same school. That's the indicator that we would use. And at the middle and high school level, it would be 2% or more active confirmed cases in an individual school for either cohort AB or cohort AC. 
And so some of the considerations are listed on the side, which would be that it immediately would, we would request state um, funding for rapid testing. Um, we would close part of the affected school or the entire school for a short time. Um, it says one to three days uh, so that we could do the contact tracing, the cleaning and the facility mitigation and things that are that are applicable during that time. It would also be to activate, make sure we activate the contact tracing protocols in compliance and par partnership with the Board of Health. We also would need to evaluate um, whether we need to be partially or fully closed um, due to the confirmed cases and if, and if the affected school for 14 um, day quarantine period. Unaffected cohorts would function um, with the potential use of a substitute or a proctor um, because the teacher is considered part of the, the cohorts and the classrooms. So as previously mentioned, we have about five different scenarios listed on this. Um, I just wanted to walk you through one of them and just reiterate again um, how Mr. Milicheski said, you know, today was the first day of school. We've been really focused on making sure that we have the remote model um, solidly in place so that we could start today as successfully as possible. Now we're shifting to making sure that we have that same focus for our hybrid um, plan and reopening. And so this is part of that hybrid planning that we've initiated and that is ongoing. So this is definitely in draft form. Um, and unless Mr. Milicheski has something further or Superintendent Dr. Edward Vincent, um, I think we could take a few questions. I just wanna say thank you to both Tom and, and Suzanne for framing the work um, that has been done. It truly has been a collaborative process a lot of meetings. Um, I want to thank Nurse Tony Ray um, and Marianne O'Connor who have been uh, meeting and uh, discussing. So there's been a lot of additional meetings happening and um, Dr. Sabia weighing in as well and getting community feedback. Um, I, so I want to just thank everyone for all of their contributions to get to this point. It is in draft form, but we did want the community to see that um, we, as we are getting ready to transition back to um, our staggered hybrid plan, we do need to be able to have some hard numbers to say what would it look like in Medford. And um, in my discussions with Marianne O'Connor, um, our director of the Board of Health, um, you know, one of the you know topics that we did mention were what happens um, in a scenario such as you know in Medford if there were to be um, you know, an outbreak at Tufts University or an outbreak at a nursing home. And so um, I'm not sure if Ms. O'Connor would be able to just, you know, reply uh, to, you know, what position, how, how would schools be impacted by that? I... Do Dr. Cushing, could you I'm working on it. Yeah, I'm trying. Thank you. She needs help with this anyway. Dr. Cushing, it's not allowing me to unmute me. Let's see if I can. She should be good now. Okay. 
my good? So this time it wasn't my fault, right? <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so absolutely. So we are aware daily of, of what cases are happening within our community and where they're coming from. Um, so obviously, God forbid, we have anything else happen in our nursing homes um, and our there's an outbreak at Tufts, like we've heard from so many other colleges now across, you know, the country is the things that are happening there. Um, we would certainly take that into consideration right, and see if there was any relationship, which hopefully there wouldn't be, um, with obviously our, our, our school district. So especially if it was a limited on-campus, you know, outbreak, um, even if it was an off-campus outbreak, was it limited for, you know, particular households and that type of thing. So... I know we're going by the state metrics. We will be affected by those numbers, right, in our state metrics. So we will need to take that into consideration if it's confined to a long-term care facility or Tufts University. Those would certainly be things that we would, you know, take into consideration before jumping to conclusions just because the state metrics all of a sudden, you know, say one thing. So, um Hopefully that answers questions, but happy to take any other questions. Thank you. Member Van der Kloot. Yes, I'm curious about notification of parents. Um, in all the steps, like if, let's say there was an, uh, uh, two students in uh, classroom A um, were, were positive, um, would the rest of the school be notified? So that's, you know, uh, the superintendent and I actually had a discussion about that today, as well as um, Tony and I. Um, we really are limited in, in disclosing any information because uh, folks could possibly be identified. It's a really serious HIPAA violation. We really need to respect people's privacy. Uh, we will notify close contacts. And you'll see the definition of a close contact um, in this document. Um, and, you know, even uh, uh, there's another comment I have on that definition, but um, you have to be within six feet, right, for at least 15 minutes um, for you to be a close contact. All of our students are really abiding by the six feet social distancing and, and not having 15 minutes of contact and wearing their masks, they shouldn't be close contacts. Um, but we will notify obviously all close contacts. I, I cannot say there is a positive case in Mrs. Jones' classroom. I cannot and will not um, because that student would be identified easily. Um, we, we may, you know, obviously if cases uh, multiple in different classrooms. We may say there are, there are cases in cohort A or B um, and, and give that information out uh, because that would be necessary. But I, I, it's, it's a very serious, and we saw it this past spring with just a few issues we had. Um, it can be, a, it's a very serious HIPAA violation and it's a privacy uh, violation. So um, people who need to be notified will be notified, absolutely. Um, and right, it's a difficult line because it um, is surely as a parent, I would want to know what was going on in my kid's school. Uh, but I certainly understand HIPAA. So, 
it, it's a fine line, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Member Rousseau, then Member Graham. Okay. Thank you, so if we can't um, say Ms. Smith's class is where this is, um, then I'm not comfortable with, with taking action at a class level. I think if we are not able to be that precise, then we're gonna have to go whole school for one, one case. Um, this is the same conversation we had when we had the measles outbreak two years ago, where there were vaccinations that were not being done by some kids because, um, because of the ways out of getting your kid vaccinated that exist in Massachusetts and in many other states. Um, and so your kid who could have a medical condition preventing from being vaccinated could be sitting next to a kid unvaccinated for religious reasons. And what I was told at the time was we can't tell that kid or their family who has a medical condition preventing them from being vaccinated that the kid sitting next to them could be vaccinated but isn't in the midst of a nationwide measles outbreak. So I, I understand HIPAA. I've worked at uh, Partners Healthcare since HIPAA was created. And I have spent uh, the last 20 years listening to HIPAA and all of its, its machinations and its misinterpretations. Um, every time I go to a doctor, I can hear how it's not understood. I'm not saying it's not correct that we can't tell anybody who it is. Um, I just think it is quite a stretch to say that the public health is not allowed to be protected in order to protect the privacy of a patient, of a student. Um, I think that is quite a stretch and one I hear all the time and I don't agree with it. And if you're saying we can't tell Ms. Smith's class that somebody in that class has tested positive, then I don't know, then I'm not sure I'm comfortable with sending kids back to school this year at all. Um, I'm not sure, okay, that, that's, that's the argument we hear a lot. Um, <clears throat> the people who need to know the close contacts will be notified. Um, and I'm sure it obviously will be, you know, everyone's guessing game, um, but it is what it is. So the close contacts, the people who need to know if they're involved will be notified. Um, Again, if there are multiple cases across multiple classrooms, it will be a cohort issue. And we can say it's a cohort issue. We can shut down part of a building. We can shut down, you know, um, a cohort. But thank you. Member Graham? So I am also concerned about the lack of information going to families as they come back to school. Um, and I appreciate um, the, the intent of HIPAA, um, but I think the community, if we go down this road, needs to be perfectly clear that at any given time, they will have no idea if their kid is gonna go to school tomorrow or not. Like there's no, there's no lead up. So one case, they won't know. And then the next day they will be told they can't come to school. Um, I have a colleague who um, sends her kids to public school in New Hampshire. And she got a call in the middle of the day, two days ago and said, come get your kids. That was it. And I, I just want to understand what options we have to make this a little bit less mysterious and awful 
for our families, because particularly at the elementary school level, these kids cannot walk home. They cannot stay home unattended. There has to be childcare in place. Um, and all of this stuff happening on a whim is not operational in a home um, if, with young if children. They're, if they're not a close uh, contact, there's not... A, some classrooms, they, they may all be close contacts, right? If you're in a younger grade, kindergarten, first grade, maybe, you know, it's hard to keep them six feet apart all the time, right? There may be intermingling. So they may all end up being contacts. So everyone will know. Um, they'll all be told uh, that you may be a close contact. You need to go home and quarantine for 14 days um, because there was a positive in your classroom. Um, but um, I think what we have said, though, is our... Um, back to our hybrid plan assures that kids are six feet apart. So what that means is that there is no such thing as a close contact in a classroom in a general sense. And so what that means tactically is that parents will never be notified because they're a close contact until they get a phone call that says, come get your kid. Or if we're the only planning reason they to would do that, the only or reason they would we, be told to come get your kid is if they were a close contact. That would be the only reason they would be told to come get your kid. Um, that is you know, the only and reason contact tracing, in but the contact community. tracing will, will allow us to say, did you walk to school with anyone? Were you on the bus with anyone? Did you do after school? Were you at recess? You know, it's not just within the classroom, right, as, a, as far as the school day goes. Are there extracurricular sure. activities that you're involved in? All of those people who need to know will know. Um, but and if I, I'm, a, I'm sorry, but that's part yeah, of it. No, I, I, I get it, Mary, and I do. But if I'm a parent of a kid in a classroom, I, for my own family's health, I, I think we're going to hear a lot of families say, I need to know. And I understand that through the definition of contact tracing that, that they don't, but this is, um, this is a really exceptional time. And there's just so much angst and anxiety um, about keeping people safe. And I'm just trying to think about ways that we can um, not violate HIPAA <laughs> because I don't want us to violate HIPAA, um, but also to provide families some reassurances. And perhaps one way to do that is to ask families to sign a release for us that says, if, I, if my child tests positive, Medford Public Schools has my permission to let their classroom cohort know that a case without my child's name has been has happened in their classroom. So maybe there's something like that that could happen where parents could voluntarily say, in the interest of public health, I'm okay with this. And um, parents did do that last spring. Um, that certainly was the case last spring. Um, yeah. And I think there is maybe something that we can go back to Jesse. Um, I believe there was some family communication guidelines uh, released last week. Um, I wasn't privy to, but so I think maybe going back to Jesse um, and looking what they've already released would be would yeah. be helpful as well. Because um, I mean, the I, reality I is, I certainly I understand. I understand. I yeah, understand. and I think the, the other concern that I have is that the reality is if we adopt a policy where we're not going to say anything because these kids are not considered close contacts. Every time somebody doesn't show up to school, my kid is going to come home and say, so-and-so wasn't in school today. And then, then the sort of 
the wheels start spinning and when we have a different problem, right? So it's, it's not a COVID outbreak, but it's like, right. You're going to have the worst thing, which is a perceived COVID outbreak. You're going to have ear infections. You're going to have strep throat. You're going to have the typical, um, and that's what we're trying to avoid. right? Yeah. And I think if we're not able to say anything, then every single time somebody is out of school, it's going to be a thing. Um, and I'm concerned about it burying the principals under communication requests and teachers and all the people who are working so hard to make this happen. Um, and I feel like there's got to be a more systemic way for us to navigate around this. I, I isn't I totally present yet, but yeah, I, I totally understand. And I know where the concern's coming from. So let's go back maybe to Desi. Uh, let's go back to uh, and maybe some policy thought, but um, to how we can do it, that makes people feel, you know, comfortable and, and assured because um, that's what we want, but I'm you know, willing, willing and happy to do that. Thanks, Marianne. Thank you. Member Rousseau, and then we have a member of the public that would like to speak. Thank you. Um, I have an email actually from the public. Um, um, it's from Jean uh, Zotter on Saunders Street. Um, First, she wants to thank MPS for developing transparent metrics and seeking public input on them. It is helpful for parents to understand the process. I appreciate that MPS and the Department of Public Health working together on this. Her question is, if one child tests positive and is quarantining, why does the class continue to meet with a substitute? Shouldn't that class or cohort also quarantine in addition to the teacher if the child attended school while positive? That seems to be what scenario one states the school's response is. And I'll, I'll just do question two quickly so that they can both be responded to. And the second one is, can the school share the document with the community for input before finalizing? Um, thank you. Do you want me to repeat the first question? All oh, it was a little complicated. Well, that, that answer was if it's close contacts, then the whole class would be quarantined. Um, but if not, only the close contacts would be asked to stay home. Okay, thank I you. Think um, some, I think some of the thought around that was if it's the Monday, Tuesday group that has to quarantine and stay home, that the Thursday, Friday group could still come to school. Uh, I'm looking to the superintendent and stuff for help on this, but um, the, the Thursday, Friday group could still come to school with the help of a proctor or substitute um, and the teacher could teach remote learning to them, but they would still be able to be in the classroom on the Thursday, Friday group, if it was only the Monday, Tuesday group that was affected. Yes. So that, that is exactly what we were saying because the cohorts are separated by Wednesday being the, the kind of uh, rest day. So if something were to happen on Monday, that cohort B would, would, would understand that they had to quarantine, but cohort C that never interacted at all with cohort B, they should still be of the, the, the school will be cleaned, the space sanitized. So cohort C students would not have been exposed. And so cohort C students would theoretically be able to go to school and continue to receive instruction. So that was, um, the separation of the cohorts and why we were trying to um, provide those definitions. So if you were in the Monday, Tuesday group, 
um, approximately, you know, 10 or 11 students, um, they would be impacted um, in quarantine, but the Thursday, Friday group would still be able to continue receiving instruction. I hope that helps. It does. Thank you. And actually, um, if I, I have may, I, my, I had a question before I read that. Um, and um, it was around, um, the, I guess, the contact tracing. Are we, is the plan to rely on the kids to tell us who they've interacted with? Because, I mean, I, I'm an adult. And on a non-pandemic day when I was interacting with the world, I'm not sure who I met with this afternoon or this morning. So it seems like a bit of a, uh, a Hail Mary to depend on children in school to remember who they've interacted with. But that's the, that's the plan. <clears throat> no, a lot of what we'll be depending on will be, uh, so I would be contacting Tony um, or my public openers would be contacting Tony. There should be seating chats. There should be knowledge of if they met with therapists or outside, you know, um, providers, um, where they were, did they go to the library, were they in the cafeteria, like we are relying, relying on the adults um, and the, the teachers and the staff and the principals and the public and the school nurses um, to really help with that, with that process. Thank you. Gary. We're gonna. Hi, I think I'm unmuted. Are people hearing me? Yes, we can hear you, Gary. Thank you very much. And thank you for recognizing me. Uh, I want to say first, thank you so much for all the hard work you all are doing. I, I, I really can't even imagine how difficult this is. Um, I hope you'll indulge me for a comment and a question. Um, first, uh, I want to say that um, uh, I support Member Graham, uh, Commissioner Graham and Commissioner Russo in saying that HIPAA can't be used as a basis not to give families information they need as long as it's nonspecific. Uh, as to the individual's health, in order to, um, families need to get information so that they can make a decision for their own children. And to say that HIPAA prevents telling a family that there's someone in one of their children's classes that's tested positive seems to me to be uh, an overread of, of what HIPAA requires. Um, the question I have is uh, perhaps a little bit uh, off topic, but uh, I want to ask as a taxpayer um, how much support uh, the schools and the school committee are getting from DESE and the Department of Education. Um, it seems to me that uh, uh, there is a need for state and federal guidance on some of the questions that um, the school committee is dealing with tonight. And I'm troubled that uh, the school seems to be reinventing the wheel, as, as is every school across the Commonwealth, um, without specific guidance about questions like uh, how notice should be provided when someone tests positive. I can try to answer that. I, the mayors and I know the Board of Health in different cities and towns were pushing DESE for this very information, and they do plan on coming out with some sort of metrics and answers of their on their own sometime this week but we went ahead last week and started our meetings to try to get this information out which other cities and towns have done member graham yeah and and i would just add to that um and this is just my own opinion that um had desi 
been forthcoming about what they plan to give out to people when and if that information had been able to be operationalized, I would have maybe been more willing to wait, but we, we need to get kids back to school and we can't do that until we have a really rational plan about what's going to happen. And so for me, I've been pushing on this for, for weeks now. I think the superintendent's probably tired of hearing from me. Um, mostly because I just did not feel like we could wait anymore for information from DESE because I I think with their best of intentions, um, they are in a difficult position of having to give guidance that applies to 351 cities and towns. That that de facto means that their their information and their guidance is gonna be super broad. Um, But what that also means is every single time it comes down to it's up to the local school committee to do this stuff. So I just don't feel like we can wait to be told that anymore. We just have to know that that's what they're going to say and believe that with the right people in the room, we're going to get headed in the right direction. And maybe we have to make some adjustments if and when they provide us guidance to make sure we're in alignment. But I find it hard to believe that anything we put in place is going to any kind of direct conflict with guidance that DESE might provide. So I really wish there was more collaboration and working groups because the fact that 351 cities and towns are figuring out things like how to put ki- how to put you know some number of kids on a school bus and how to make that workable is just stunning. It's a, you know it it is it is an unbelievable failure of our system, um, but it is our reality, and we can either be upset about that, or we can decide that we're just going to sort of do what we need to do to get our kids back to school. And I think that's where we're sort of at, at this moment. Um, I wish it was different, but it's not. So we just have to sort of plow ahead. That's my two cents. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Christopher Carbone. Uh, Thank you. My name is Christopher Carboni. I live at 63 Bowen Avenue in Medford. Uh, My daughter attends, as of today, finally attends the high school. Uh, Rachel and my younger daughter, Sarah, continues to uh, uh, go to the the school formerly known as Columbus. Last week, and I'm not picking on him, but I remember this comment specifically. Mr. Rousseau, Councilperson Rousseau, there was some issue before the committee, and, and Councilperson Rousseau said something to the effect of, We should take this action and let the lawyers worry about it later, whether we were right or wrong. And I thought that was pretty bold leadership. I thought I actually thought that was a good way to look at it. Now, suddenly we're tied up with HIPAA right now. And at least two council people have now spoken up and said, we're not even sure if this is an accurate reading of HIPAA. If parents classroom gets gets uh, COVID. I think it should be a a relative use of of, um, the information to inform parents of that classroom that there was a child in that classroom who had COVID. And we can't use HIPAA as an excuse not to inform parents. It seems like it's being used as an excuse, not a reason. I, I thought we built up so much momentum from last week's meeting where it looked as if we were going to try to get the children back in school come October. But now I've heard at least one council person say, well, I'm not comfortable with it anymore. And I know that was in, that was in reference to this specific issue. But October 16th is pretty much here. We're, I, the, the, the stores already have the, the candy for Halloween. 
This committee has to start making these decisions. And I understand Desi's a problem, but once again, it, we're, we're using certain elements as excuses for not taking action, not reason to actually take the action. Last week, it was good enough. We should take a certain action and let the lawyers figure it out later. This week, well, now it's a barrier. I, I don't think that's, I, I, I want to, I guess my question would be, why was it okay last week and not okay this week? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Carboni. We do have a resolution on that topic as well in a little bit. Um, Mr. Capraro, comments on Medford Public School draft COVID-19 metrics? Yes, um, Richard Capraro. I just think that in regards to people talking down of HIPAA, I think when the situation comes down to it's your student or your child that actually is the carrier, it's going to be a different story to these parents who want to say, get the lawyers involved after, and then that ends up again on the mayor's lap um, when she's sued by parents. But when a student wants their privacy and now their name is going to be put out there, well, what classroom? And we'll have to listen to this all over again, how people got bullied because someone knew they had COVID. So it needs to be thought and you need to respect HIPAA uh, for what it is. It's put there for a reason. And before people should quote partners health, they should talk to general counsel before they quote them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Member McLaughlin. Thank you. Again, I'm just going to turn off my video because of my signal. Um, I just wanted to say, I, I don't think, you know, I, I could be wrong. I'm not a, an attorney, obviously, but HIPAA is a pretty strict law. Um, and I don't think there's any, you know, workarounds for it. And I think Marianne's made that really clear. Um, and I think that uh, Howard, if he was still on the call, um, would also be able to make it really clear. Um, so I'm not sure why we're really talking about potential workarounds for HIPAA because unless we're talking about the interpretation of the law specifically, and in that case, I don't think any of us are attorneys um, except maybe, you know, Howard or others that are on the call, but specifically um, uh, health attorneys, health law attorneys, and we should get advice from those folks, but we can, you know, converse obviously all night about it, but um, we have to follow the law as a school district. Thank you, Member McLaughlin. Jackie? Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, great. Jackie Falco, 123 Fulton Spring Road. I came in late, so I didn't see the entire presentation, but I just wanted to um, talk after hearing um, a comment made earlier. It's I'm a school nurse, and it's really hard to be a school nurse in, amongst educational professionals. And I just want to thank um, everyone who's involved, uh, Tony Ray and the Director of Public Health for doing what they're doing. I'm a parent of two kids at the high school. I have selected the hybrid option. Nothing is safe in this world, and I think parents have to understand that. But I think we really have to trust our professionals who are in the building, um, dealing with COVID, making sure that our kids are safe, and we really need to have their back and trust them to understand what HIPAA is. Um, and it's, you know, it may be unfortunate when you're in that situation and you don't know who your child's, um, you know, may have sat next to and 
may have been exposed to when you get their phone call to come get your kid, but it's really important that we trust our nurses. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. If there's no further questions, we can go on to old business. Hearing and seeing none. Are there any communications? Nothing, no ma'am. Nothing, okay. Actually, I have a quick question um, related to the metrics. Um, one of the things the superintendent didn't cover in her report was sports. And I know that there was, um, we made decisions last week about um, fall athletics. And part of that decision was about um, having protocols for um, teams presented to this committee before um, sports begin. And I know that coaches are already reaching out to players. And I don't think that we've seen any of those protocols yet. So I was just hoping for an update um, and uh, trying to understand whether those protocols are in the works, if Marianne has seen them um, and what the next steps are, because as far as I can tell, we won't be ready for sports to start practicing next week at this point. Is Director Maloney on the call or Dr. Edward Vincent, do you have? Um, I, I don't know if Dr. Cushing can speak up to this. Um, I, I do know that they were following clear guidelines and protocols, so I can be able to get that to you. I don't have that, um, you know, at the ready. I, I wasn't aware that um, we were going to be talking about fall athletics today. Um, but everything that we've been doing, we've done it in collaboration with guidance from DESE, guidance with the Board of Health, um, and so where sports are concerned and the sports that they were um, talking about, whether it was track, um, everything was about, you know, hand sanitizer, um, social distancing, um, MIAA, you know, gave additional guidance. So all of those things were being um, followed. And so at our um, next regular meeting, um, I can definitely have um, the time to get all of that ready to be able to present to the entire committee. But Dr. Cushing, I don't know if you um, can weigh in. Yeah, so we have begun to work on those as well, but there, there are also, um, as the superintendent mentioned, um, specific protocols that have been put in place by um, DESE and um, the Executive Office of um, Energy and um, Environment, I believe it is specifically around youth sports, but those go up the, um, they go up the, um, I'm about to get zoom bombed by my four-year-old. I apologize. <laughs> um, but they go up the, uh, chain throughout, um, all of the, um, the sports. So we've got MIAA to come into consideration. There are specific rules around soccer practice and things along those, that are um, part and parcel to um, one of the reasons why fall sports was moved because um, it's just the challenge of playing the sport with so many new rules. So any of our um, sports and conditioning practices will take all of these into consideration. Thank you very much. And I, I bring that up because parents have been reaching out to me um, who are excited about sports, but also who are noting that um, 
the things that you might expect to see regarding social distancing, masks, et cetera, have not been present at things like captain's practices. And I just want to know what our protocol will be um, that will mitigate against these kinds of unsafe practices that could impact our ability to get kids back to school, particularly at the high school. Yep. So an interesting thing around captain's practices is that captain's practices are um, not specifically sanctioned by schools um, and have limited yeah. oversight per the MIAA. Um, but we also do need uh, families and student athletes to be following the, the in-place mask um, not to use Dr. Fauci, but you know, uh, he's a great guy to listen to on these things. Um, wearing masks, social distancing and, um, hand sanitizer, uh, and what frequent washing of hands. I would also say, um, that what that, um, running and conditioning and those types of things is, is something that can be done. Um, but we will definitely get, uh, the protocols out to families mm -hmm. so that they're well aware. And will families be signing a, an agreement on these protocols? Uh, I would say that it, it's much like any of our athletics forms and waivers. We'll be able to present on registrations at our next meeting. Um, okay. You know, I don't have the specific numbers, but right now registrations were, were down um, pre. Um, uh, they were down pre the vote of the... Um, GBL, uh, it was a four to one vote uh, to go to fall two. Um, Mr. Maloney, our athletic director, mentioned last time uh, the challenges that are going to be with having fall two, which starts on February 22nd. So uh, soccer, football, golf, um, and cross country starting on February 22nd. Having been a fall athlete myself, um, I would see that to be quite a challenge to be merging ice skating and football, um, <laughs> having done that on frozen fields before. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to come up with some solutions. Um, so we will definitely have to incorporate those in any types of waivers or other things along those lines that we'll have parents signing. And um, one last sports question, because um, I think there are middle school families out there who are wondering what those the um, GBL decisions were about middle school sports. Can you just give us a quick update on that? Yeah, so there, there was no decision from my understanding because it was never a topic fully discussed. Um, so, um, so we have a lot more flexibility actually when it comes to middle school sports because it is not sanctioned by the MIAA. Um, middle school sports are actually supported and sanctioned by the MS, the MSAA, which is the school administrators association. I actually serve on the ad hoc committee for middle school sports, um, statewide. And, um, one of the things that we're discussing is what we're going to recommend if it's going to be in line with the MIAA or how it is. Um, I'm a firm believer that we need to at least try to not try. Um, I want to rephrase that, that we need to find opportunities to get our athletes on the field. Um, the support that coaches, that athletes being with one another in a physically distant masked and hand sanitized fashion um, offers for them is so critically important to the development 
as young people and the opportunity for teams. So we're going to be working on making sure that we can have those opportunities for them to participate, even if it's intercity, um, so that we are participating against Medford athletes. We cannot scrimmage varsity or junior varsity athletics. Uh, we can't scrimmage. We can't do anything per MIAA. We reached out to see that, you know, if we as a city in the yellow or green, hopefully we'll be there soon, could reach out to other communities and participate with them, um, pick up games against private schools. And we were told that we would have to go through the district athletic committee, um, which would break from the GBL. Um, so. Thank you. And maybe we could, it, this wasn't on the agenda, so maybe we can put that in writing, get up, up on our website for any parents that may have missed it and have sports-related questions. Thank you. Um, under new business, we have three resolutions and two condolences. Um, number one, be it resolved that the school committee discuss a date certain to start the staggered hybrid, assuming the air exchange testing came out with positive results and Medford is not in the red. And that was offered by myself as we, we are in a, in a much better position than we were in on August 17th when we voted to go remote. We have the situation um, that took place around that time under control. We have not, we've increased in cases but now this week we are down, as Ms. O'Connor said, we are starting to come down. We're in the yellow. We've never hit the red. We have PP enough supply of PPE. We have teacher testing set up for um, the 24th of September. And we will also have another round of teacher testing set up for before we start the staggered hybrid. We have um, ear quality testing has been completed and there is no cause for concern. We have fil filters, $100,000 worth of filters that have been ordered and coming in. We have fans that are currently being fixed. And now is a time where we can open some of our classroom windows and allow for that air exchange while we're waiting on implementing the filters, which will hopefully come by the time, you know, the weather gets gets colder. So I'd like to propose to the school committee that we just have a discussion on a date certain to at least try to get our younger students back um, K through two. I know that the sixth grade was on that plan as well as 11th and 12th vocational students. I know there's other grade levels that can be discussed as well, but I think there's a parents want to not only plan, but they want a heads up on what the committee is thinking. And I believe that we are much better suited. It's been a month and we are in a much better place. And I feel that we need to set a date sometime early October to have a goal to get our kids back um, starting the staggered hybrid. And obviously it'd be a discussion on when to bring back, if we're gonna start K through two, sixth and seventh or sixth and eighth, and some of our high school students, when would we bring back the rest? And obviously that would come a week or two or three later, but I think this is extremely important to get our younger students, our students just entering middle school, even high school back in the classrooms so that they um, can learn in a classroom setting. Um, this will give us three weeks at least to perfect the remote model, which for the most part went very well today. 
Um, I think that's good that we did it. I don't regret my decision to, to do that considering the place we were in on August 17th, but we're in a much different place now. And I asked the committee to discuss it and create a plan moving forward. Uh, Member Kretz. Yep, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so, um, yep, I did reach out to John McLaughlin today and, you know, just, you know, go over everything with him because he's more of an expert. And um, so he said that, you know, the air quality test in all the schools is fine. There's no concern. Um, we are waiting for the supplies of the, the HEPA filters that were ordered, and those are on order. Um, it might be several weeks before we get those supplies. Um, I think in the interim, a window can be opened in the classroom while we wait for the HIPAA filters to arrive. Um, and he's working on getting screens ordered so that at least they would be able to put a screen in every other window you know, so that there would be, you know, every other window could be open in a classroom um, to get the fresh air circulation in. And, um, you know, also another possibility, and I think Ms. Graham mentioned this earlier, was, um, you know, figuring out what classrooms are ready. You know, let's get the kindergarten, you know, K-2 ready first, have them evaluated, you know, so that we can definitely bring those students back first. And then, um, of course, you know, with the CTE students, because, um, you know, they, you know, they can't do their trades, you know, the grades 11 and 12, I think would be um, another possibility if we could try to get those, um, you know, the, the air exchange tests done at the vocational, and they can open their back bay doors to get the air exchange going there. Um, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good where the numbers are good and we're trending in the right direction and we're, you know, our numbers are going down. Um, and, um, you know, currently the Catholic schools are, you know, they're in every day and, you know, um, you know, so far so good, you know, things are going smooth. Um, I do think that, you know, with the high numbers of families that want to go hybrid, you know, I think we need to definitely, you know, pick a date. Yes. can make make a motion member mistone i was just asking mayor are you i mean are we just reverting back to the original vote we took on august 6 when we voted for the hybrid and then we the following week because we were concerned about going into the red we voted for the full remote so this is just the, from the original motion of a hybrid with the date certain so whether that's october 5th or october 12th I'm looking for a vote tonight to say that's our goal to get our start the staggered hybrid on such and such a date so that everybody's ready. We can start negotiating. We can make sure put a little pressure make sure these um, fans are completely fixed. I know they're working hard. We have contractors on the roofs working hard to replace any that may be broken. That's ongoing. Um, but this will get everybody in the know and make sure we're pushing to get our students back in the classroom, even if it is a slow, he staggered hybrid. Okay. Is it possible that we vote on the metric system first? Or 
are we still waiting for an update on the metric system so we can have a metric system in place and then say October 5th and everyone will know that's what we're using for moving forward with schools having a hybrid model? Or do you think we'll just pick an October 5th date and then make sure at our September 28th meeting we have the metric system in place? Are you talking about the metric, um, the drafts that we just went over? Yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much completed. I think we just need a little feed, feedback um, once everybody digests it. So hopefully we'll be able to approve that on the 28th because a lot of work was put into getting that in place. Okay, thank you. Member McLaughlin. Thank you. I was just wondering um, if we have a date for the uh, HVAC reports that will come out. One to two weeks. Oh, member um, David Murphy. I, I just, um, the administration will obviously adhere to whatever the, uh, whatever position the committee takes with regard to a date certain. Um, I just want to make two points, one with regard to HVAC and one with regard to the ongoing negotiations. The first is that the uh, firm that is completing the air exchange testing originally told us that the, those reports would be in our hands by September 30th. This afternoon, they did qualify that by communicating to us that they think it will be on or around September 30th and essentially said it could take until October 2nd. I think we'll have several of those reports prior to September 30th. And based on the timeline that they are uh, using in which buildings they are testing, I think the high school will be the building that we have data on last, meaning that if you were to vote for the K-2 uh, cohort to come in, that wouldn't necessarily affect the high school, although we have to obviously uh, address both high need students and potentially uh, kids corner. So there's, there are implications for the high school, but um, less so if that's, if that's the cohort of students. But we don't know exactly when the, those reports are coming in. Uh, we don't obviously know what they'll, what exactly what they will say. I'll go back to the point that I made in the HVAC presentation earlier. We have no evidence to suggest that any buildings are unsafe. And so the administration would not be in a position now to caution you against taking a vote of this nature based on any concerns with regard to safety. There are logistical implications to operationalizing a start to school, including the ongoing negotiations, such that if it's a choice between October 5th and October 13th, um, again, it is entirely the committee's decision and we will, we will abide by it and we will, we will make it work one way or another. But the additional window would be beneficial for those operational purposes. I, that being said, you know, every additional week is more stress on families. It's more potential for confusion. Uh, there's another week of anxiety and uncertainty. And so those are the things that obviously have to be balanced. And we will obviously, we will make whatever, whatever you decide work. Um, I think it's important to state because I know there are stakeholders that are involved in the bargaining that this is a decision that this school committee makes this year and this school committee makes every year just to take a vote as to when, when school will start and what the school calendar will be. We will then obviously discuss with our bargaining partners the implications of that and of that calendar being set. So I, I think it's, I, I want to stress it's perfectly appropriate and we're going to make whatever the committee decides work, but there are definitely steps that we then have to we have to take as a result of that decision. Thank you. 
Thank you. Member Van de Kloot? Yes, I guess um, one of the things I'm looking at is that right now we're proposing um, and we've been planning for the most vulnerable kids starting on the 28th. Um, I'm wondering uh, if we set the 5th as the date, we've only gotten one week under our belt. Um, I'm wondering if we need a little bit more time. Um, the other factor, of course, is we have to set up transportation um, and other um, other workout various things like that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, um, you know, of course, I realize that people are anxious to go back. Kids are anxious to go back. Um, we also know that the teachers have a lot of reservations um, um, that we still need to work out. And I'd hate to set a date and then have to back off of it and back off of it. So, you know, I'm wondering if it's at least better to wait till um, the following week, the 13th which is a Tuesday because of a Columbus Day uh, weekend or Indigenous Peoples weekend. Please. Um, member Rousseau and then Member McLaughlin. Yes, thank you. So if we um, bring back our most vulnerable students on the 28th or 29th or whatever date we end up picking, um, and we put them into buildings that are not their normal standard buildings while we wait for other activities to take place at the high school and the other schools. Um, if we bring back the other kids, the other hybrid kids, the non-vulnerable hybrid students, uh, we're gonna have to push those kids out of the brooks or wherever we've placed them. And we're not gonna have any place to push them to. So, um, I mean, are we actually considering bringing back all of the hybrid kids in the staggered approach and then having the vulnerable kids, which we finally get back to school, have to go back to full remote because they're high school students and the high school is not ready. Um, I mean, these are seem like they're related concepts, uh, re related uh, scheduling things. Um, and I'm just curious if that's been thought through and what anybody thinks of that. I think that has been thought through um, and we're making sure we place them accordingly, um, Dr. Edward Vincent. Yes, for our most vulnerable um, at the high school, um, although we know that there's some work to be done um, in the B building, um, that is fairly recently renovated. And so if we have to think creatively and think outside of the box, um, that could potentially be a portion of the high school that would most likely um, have uh, more positive outcomes than some of the other parts of the high school that have not been recently renovated. So um, B building uh, science wing is five or six years old. Um, so it's fairly new, completely renovated. So if we did need to think about um, relocating some of our most vulnerable students um, in the interim, that could be a um, viable option um, and we could continue you know to discuss and try to look at other options thinking outside of the box um, regarding our our most vulnerable students um, in grades 9 through 12. So I, I just want to be I mean it, it just sounds like you know we could be shuffling our most vulnerable students around a week after they finally come back into the building. 
if we were to come back one, if, if the other hybrid students were coming back one week after the most vulnerable students, the most vulnerable students would come back and then a week later, their classrooms would be in different places. There, you know, they probably would have the same teachers, but the, you know, they would. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm thinking specifically about ninth graders who are already going to struggle with, you know, the high school's enormous. Um, I, I don't remember much from high school, but I remember that first couple of weeks of like being lost in the huge facility, and I wasn't even the same school. Um, and um, so I, I guess I'm just concerned about bringing them back. And then just as soon as they start to figure out which way to go when they walk through the building, we're going to say, forget that schedule, which, you know, we had plenty of complaints about schedules that one day later, or, you know, there was, there was three schedules given out to kids for the middle school yesterday. Um, and, um, and I understand why, but uh, are we going to really have a schedule and then change the whole schedule around for these kids? A week later, um, and, and also, if it's going to be one week, I question the whole point of all the work necessary to get our most vulnerable kids in for that one extra week. I mean, one week is important for those students, but it takes the staff. I mean, it's going to take an incredible lift on the administration to get them in. And if you tell me we're going to do that huge lift for one week of additional in-person education. Um, and that's, that's the only thing you're getting out of that one week. It just seems like a questionable use of resources, especially if you're also at the same time trying to do the lift of getting the high school open for all the other kids. So I, I just feel like you, you can't split yourselves in three to do the work. So if you think you can actually do the work with the staff you have, I will believe you, um, but it, it seems like an awfully enormous lift. Member McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, I'm a little bit confused. So I understood that our vote was that we would look at the remote um, as of October 16th, we would revisit the uh, staggered hybrid model. Um, so if I'm understanding correctly, Mayor, you're making a motion that we consider that sooner. So that's what the discussion is we're having right now. We are not from what I understand, having a discussion about when our most vulnerable students start, unless we're also having a discussion about that, which I wanna clarify. So I also wanna point out to folks that we talked about our most vulnerable students starting on the 21st of September. That recently changed to the 28th. So our parents have already been pushed, our families have already been pushed back a week for those students. Additionally, those students, many of whom have uh, an autism spectrum diagnosis, who are nonverbal, who use communication devices, who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, who have all of these um, services that they should have been receiving since March and have not been, um, and who have significantly regressed, whose families are experiencing, uh, frankly, trauma and all kinds of issues, mental health and other issues. Um, when we talk about delaying them any longer, I can't, that does not sit well with me. In fact, you know, I would get them in as soon as as soon as possible. Um, I'm surprised that we're already moving from the 21st to the 28th or whatever that is that we're moving. I'm also very concerned about 
civil rights violations for these students, about compensatory services for these students, uh, for folks that know the law, IDEA, the Individuals with um, Disabilities Education Act. Uh, you understand that the IEPs need to be followed and that students are required to have certain services. If they don't receive services for a sustained amount of time, they are eligible to receive compensatory services. So that would be additional services to, uh, well, not additional, that would be a makeup for all of the services that they lost. So the uh, economic weight of that on our district, in addition to any potential litigation from families who feel their uh, students' civil rights are being violated through the IDA is very concerning. So I, uh, I'm i not sure that we're talking about the same thing. I, I don't know that we want to conflate the discussion between the two. I think we need to focus on our high needs, most vulnerable students coming in on the 28th. Um, if we're proposing uh, another date for our other students and our hybrid students, then we need to be uh, very specific about that and what that is. But I don't think that that, uh, that one relates to the other specifically. And if they do because of building and space, uh, then we need to think about what other spaces we're getting for these children. Desi has made this a priority. We need to make this a priority. These students have been waiting far too long and they're far too vulnerable. And they're always the ones that are most affected uh, when we're in these situations. Thank you, Melanie. I'll just clarify that, yes, this has to do with the staggered hybrid. Our most vulnerable are the students we want to get back on the 28th, and that is a plan in motion. Um, this is separate from that, trying to get the staggered hybrid started and giving it at least a week after our most vulnerable are back in school, but with a date close to certain or at least a, a date to strive for to get our staggered hybrid started, which is our K through two, children who are learning to read, sixth graders going into a new school, um, 11th and 12th students who need to be in their shops, um, et cetera. So I would propose that either the fifth or the, that we vote for either the fifth or, or the, 13th be the date that we set for um, starting the staggered hybrid. You know, we always said we were going to talk about this on or before the 16th and with the circumstances being uh, much better than they were in August. I feel that tonight is the night that we should at least talk about the subject. Member Rousseau, Member Vandekloot. Um, I have two emails, but I believe Member Vandekloot's hand was up before mine. So oh, read the emails. Okay, thank you. Uh, the first one is from uh, Sean Began, three, uh, Lawrence Road. Um, and I took my glasses off, so that makes it challenging to read. Uh, I would like to voice my support for the mayor's resolution. It is important to set a date now for a return to in-person learning for a number of reasons. First, in-person hybrid learning is preferred to remote learning for two-thirds of the parents based on two surveys. Second, it establishes a deadline for the administration to use with its vendors and creates necessary a the necessary sense of urgency to get tasks accomplished. Third, it allows teachers and parents to begin to plan for the necessary adjustments in their schedules. Finally, it is an action that affirms the message from this committee and the administration that an in-person return is a top priority. Thank you for all your efforts. And the other email was also from Mr. Began. Um, uh, please keep in mind that the return is phased in, staggered, so the displacement Mr. Rousseau is concerned about concerned with may not be as great as anticipated on the first date. Um, and then um, 
Member Vanderclute, next, I think. Member Vanderclute. Yes, uh, so I'd actually like to turn to the superintendent and ask her what she thinks is uh, reasonable um, and appropriate. I mean, I think we all want to get kids back in school. Uh, are we talking on um, that the next one would be K-2? Are we talking, I thought it was originally just kindergarten. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have the original model before me right now. Um, uh, would we do kindergarten and sixth grade? So, um, Superintendent, can I turn to you for a little more guidance before we set the date? Yes, and I'm going to ask if um, one member of my team, if Mr. Milicheski could pull up the staggered hybrid um, graph, if you're able to quickly screen share that so the school committee can see what the official grade levels are. Um, once we started the staggered hybrid process, um, it was approximately every two weeks. So thinking about the every two week interval, October tw uh, September 28th being um, a Monday, if we went two weeks from that date, um, that would put us at the October 13th date. So I would recommend um, for the approximately, you know, uh, 400 plus students who potentially are identified as our most vulnerable to start school on September 28th and the staggered hybrid would start on October 13th. That would be my recommendation. So we would have the two weeks um, with the most vulnerable and then um, work at bringing in the staggered hybrid. And if Mr. Milicheski can't, uh, look, have you located that document? If not, I can ask one of the other members um, just to be able to display that. Um, on the original uh, presentation, uh, it was kindergarten, first and second grade. So essentially uh, we would go in, change the dates. Uh, October 13th would start the hybrid instruction for kindergarten, first, second grade, sixth grade. And um, I think given the time that we've had now, I would propose adding our grade 12 vocational students on Tuesday, um, October. I, I would slide this bar over for our um, vocational students to start um, given the information. additional weeks out. Point of information. Information, member Russo. Yes, um, I, while I didn't agree with the committee, I'm quite sure the committee voted to make 12th graders be in line with the first day with the kindergartners, et cetera. So that chart needs to be updated. Um, I realized that was the one presented in the meeting and then it was amended and of course it didn't get updated, but um, 12th grade was voted to go with the first other classes. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Um, member Graham? Um, Superintendent, I wondered what your thoughts would be about pulling kindergartners in a week so that they would start on October 12th, just kindergarten, just bringing the, the, those kids into the building one week before we start bringing in the one, two. I'm very concerned about bringing K one, two into the building all at the same time. I think part of the value of staggering people in allows the people in the building to learn the routines with the kind of support that I think that we need to teach these routines. 
and bringing three grades, especially at that young age, and at the same time does concern me because it just stretches a thin set of support staff um, just a little bit more than I think is comfortable. So curious what your thoughts are about kinder starting on the fifth and then the staggered hybrid starting on the 12th. Um, I would definitely be in support of kinder starting on the fifth. Um, staggered hybrid starting on the 13th, uh, first grade, second grade, sixth grade, and 12th grade. And um, uh, on that original table, we had a one month period between um, sixth grade staggering in and seventh and eighth grade. Thank you, Mr. Milicheski. At seventh and eighth grade, starting um, a month out. And so um, one of the parent feedback was at the middle school level, could we allow seventh grade to start during the second session and then eighth grade? So it would be progressive. And I, I wasn't opposed to that. So the modification would be kindergarten, October 5th, grades one, two, six and 12 on October 13th. And we would have um, the following two weeks from October 13th, we would allow seventh grade to stagger in. And I'm just trying to pull up a visual of the calendar. Is there any way we can update this slide in real time so that we're all clear about the vote we're about to take? Okay. And, if we, and if we could, um, debate. <laughs> I know that's painful. <laughs> yeah. And if we could also debate the, I mean, I think we should be bringing back whether it's a week, you know, on the 19th, I should, I think we should be doing, um, stage two first, you know, three, four and five, seven and eight. And then obviously we get, we need testing at the high school, but bringing back the ninth graders because, you know, they're going into a new school. So I think we need a little bit more debate on second stage of, of the staggered hybrid. Cause I would ask that, you know, if by that time all fans should be, should be fixed, all HEPA filters should be, should be here and installed, you know, and I just think we're, we've lost, we have lost a month. So I would just kind of debate that a little bit. I think kindergarten on the fifth is a great idea. Staggered hybrid starts for one, two, six, and 12 on the 13th. And then whether it's the 19th or a little bit after that, we bring in the three, four, five, seven, eight, and then nine. So I, Mayor, I remember Graham, a couple of thoughts that I had. Um, could we potentially um, make the cycles? one week cycles, but bring in one grade at a time. So I'm very concerned about bringing three grades in. I don't care what, when we bring three grades in, it's still the same problem of kids learning routines um, and us being spread across eight buildings, at least for me, that is a big driver. So I would, I would personally be more in favor of bringing people in each week, phasing people in, but, but bringing in only one grade at a time each week. Um, I also would be interested in the superintendent's thoughts about 
um, why the 12th grade should supersede the, the path that we're taking to bring in the newest students to the buildings um, in the, um, in the high, at the high school level. And, and do we need to carry that forward or like what I'm just trying to understand why we would break with the, the process that we're using in the other levels um, at the 12th grade level. The 12th, um, the 12th grade recommendation was for the vocational students because those students um, need the hands-on hours. And so part of their programming is one portion is academic, but then a significant portion in 12th and 11th grade is significantly hands-on learning, whether it's electrical, cooking, um, you know, cosmetology, you know, washing hair, rollers, dyeing, yeah. uh, working on break, uh, breaks. They need that um, hands-on practice. And so um, that's a significant part of their junior and senior year. So I, I know the, the, the slide deck is being updated right now, but that was what the reasoning was to stagger in with the vocational students so they would be getting their required hands-on hours no matter what um, programming, uh, you know, what. Yeah, I understand. I'm an, I, I get the vocational side of the school. I'm talking about the 12th grade non-vocational students um, coming back to school before the ninth grade students at the high school, not the vocational students. The voca I, I'm, I'm with you on the recommendation around vocational. I'm just not sure I understand on the other side why we're switching methodologies. Okay, I, I, I would love to see the table again. I don't, I don't know how far you are, Mr. Milicheski. Um, just to be able to see the, the, the dates. Member Graham's also talking about the vote we took on the 17th of Correct. August to include the 12th graders. And I believe the reasoning was, um, it's their last, well, I know different member can explain more, but it was their, it's their last year of school. And um, obviously our outgoing 12th graders went through a lot this year, so. Mayor. Member McLaughlin. Yes, I had mentioned this at that meeting. Um, I also, just full disclosure, I have a senior, but in addition to having a senior, it was watching what the seniors had gone through last year, all the milestones that they had missed, the milestones all the juniors had missed that are now the seniors, the rising seniors, um, that it's, you know, they've been part of Medford Public Schools for the past um, 12 years. This is their final year here. Um, that they should be given priority. Uh, we talked a lot last year about our mental health of our seniors. Uh, Dr. Cushion went out of his way, um, among other administrators, to uh, deliver signs for graduation. And um, you guys did so much around diplomas and everything else. And I just, I know that we don't know whether we're going to end up remote again or what our scenario is, but I really do feel like um, 
you know, my own son aside, I'm thinking of the class as a whole and also last year's seniors, we need to prioritize this class. Um, the, the only thing I, I will say, um, you know, with the grades, it's being adjusted right now um, by the team. When we were originally were doing uh, the, the two-week phases, what I had liked about the, the, the two-week phasing in was that we were able to monitor um, the activity of as additional grades were coming in, we were able to monitor, continue to, to build that. So we just wanna, um, as I'm looking at it, and I know the colors haven't changed yet. Um, um, but as, as we're having this discussion, I think if we look at it and we see um, the grade levels that are being um, staggered in, uh, we can definitely look to see where we could, you know, make a change. Yeah, we need to add the 19th for ninth grade, at least. And then the 13th, oh, is, is Vogue is, is hybrid. So 12th should be hybrid the 13th so mayor member Vanderclute. so the my only concern with this though is that we know that the biggest concerns in terms of the air ventilation is at the high school um and now we've got two grades going in um you know, so that's, it's just there for me. It's, um, it's going to take some time to do all the work. Um, so, you know, I, I'm fine with setting this up as this is, um, you know, and especially as we get later, I mean, I think in, um, but you know, that this is, this is really what our objective is. This is what we want to have happen. This is what we're working towards. Um, yeah, by the 19th, we should have, we have 125,000 we're putting into fixing 100 fans on the roof. Um, the HEPA filters will be here and installed. So hope you would hope, plus the air quality is of no concern. I think information. a good start. Member Rousseau. Um, yes, I, I thought I had just heard that it was a five weeks before we would be getting the fans. Is that correct? Three to three to five for the filters. And that's to get them in or install them? Receive them. Okay. I, I, see, I, I agree. Just in classrooms that need them. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree completely with getting a date. Um, I just think... What I, I'm concerned about, and I think Member Vanderclute literally just said this, so sorry to repeat you, but um, setting a date that we don't have any, that I presently don't feel strongly that we can meet these dates that are on the screen um, is 
it, you know, if we were building software, we would do this all the time. We set unreasonable dates so that we work our butts off to try and get there. And then we push it out a little. But what we're doing here is setting dates for parents to figure out alternative, you know, childcare and planning their own employment and, and all this other stuff. And so for me to just say, well, we didn't make the date a week before it's time, we're pushing it out another week or another two weeks. Um, you know, the impact of that is going to be fairly predictable. It's going to be a, a wild set of emails of incredibly angry people that think we can't do it, even though what we can't do is we can't make China manufacture HIPAA filters any faster and ship them any faster and install them here any faster. So I, I am totally on board with getting us a date and the earliest possible date possible. But what I don't feel like we have right now is the pieces that I think we've agreed have to be in place. Like, do we know that that stuff's gonna be there? Cause I just think it's, it's a, a setup. It feels like a setup that we're gonna pick a date that we know we're not gonna really make, you know, that we ordered Chromebooks, they were gonna be here in middle of August, then they're gonna be here at the end of August, then they're not here yet. And, um, that's not just Chromebooks. It, everybody in the country is wanting HEPA filters, right? So I, I just am very concerned. We're setting ourselves up to just have another 450 people on the meeting screaming at us that we were, said we were going to be open on October 5th. Here it is, October 5th, and it ain't happening um, because I can't manufacture HEPA filters in my basement. So if we want to pick a date, I'll agree with any date we pick, but I'm don't have any reason to believe that any date we pick right now is valid based on all the elements of stuff we are waiting on. Member Graham. So um, as I think about what this motion ultimately needs to contain, um, in addition to clarity of that chart, um, it would, in my mind, be contingent on the creation and completion of our building readiness checklists, as well as um, approval of our um, community and building-based health metrics um, that we will use as the buildings reopen. So um, for me, and I'm happy to like write a motion um, that contains these things, but that for us to put a date on the page, um, a, I want assurances from the administration that they believe it's achievable um, because if it's not, then we're sort of artificially trying to make people happy by having a date, which I don't think actually makes anybody happy at all. Um, but also a commitment that we are gonna create these, these building readiness checklists. We are gonna be transparent about them and complete them and that we are gonna finalize the community health metrics. I think we've taken a lot of good positive steps in that regard. Um, but I do think there are still a lot of, um, there are a lot of loose ends that need to be tied up and provided that those are priorities and we can um, weave into this motion with clarity that those things must occur um, before we are going to rely on the date. I think I'm fine with that. Um, and perhaps the motion also needs to say that we will meet at some point in time um, with a go, no go decision for, for that start. If it's October 5th, um, that we would meet on X by X day on X day, um, to, to simply say, are we a green light for kindergarten or not? Um, 
So I would also like to see there be a go, no go um, decision date placed in the motion so that it's very clear to everybody what we're trying to accomplish, that we have a reasonable plan to get there. Um, we have the confidence of the administration that it is achievable and that there will be a clear date where we say, yes, this is working or no, it is not. I would say just um, the 28th, which would be one week prior to October 5th. And we'll know at, at that evening how school went that day for our most vulnerable. Yeah, and I think that would be fine. But I do think what that means, just to be perfectly clear, um, if we're not, like, it's a no-go if we're still waiting on reports on the 28th. So, um I don't know that the, I feel like the 28th is rational in terms of it's a week out. People have a week to plan, but I think it angles towards a no go much faster. Um, if we put the date there, because we're not even getting reports back until the 30th. We, we may have later. the reports back for our kindergarten classrooms on the 28th. Cause we already have the Brooks, which tested pretty well. Um, and they're, and that's possible. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know that we can bank on that. That's all I'm saying. So, I mean, I, I would also be in favor of a short meeting later in the week where we are literally just making a go, no go decision. I mean, that is done all the time where you have a meeting, your whole purpose is go, no go. You make the go, no go and you go home. <laughs> so I'm fine with that kind of model too. I know that doesn't give families a lot of time to plan, but I think the alternative to that quick turnaround of a go, no go is to push everything out a week. And I, I think particularly our kindergarten families would want to be in school faster, even if it meant a quicker turn on that go, no go decision. I don't know. That's just sort of the feedback that I've received so far. Yeah. Let's do the, maybe the 28th and we'll hold another date just in case. Um, Mr. Murphy. Thank you, Mayor. I, I just wanted to say that I, I think the idea of having a date by which you'll you'll take a vote um, for a green light, red light decision and a date and, and establishing a timeline serves a valuable purpose in terms of communicating to the community what they can expect as of this date. I just don't want there to be any confusion, confusion or false expectations as to what information will be available on the 28th. I think it is very likely that there are critical data points that will not yet be available as of September 28th. However, I'll say again that when I say a critical data point, that is not to suggest that I think there's some information we need with certainty to know that buildings are safe because as of, as of this moment, we have no basis to believe that buildings are unsafe, which is why no one is cautioning the committee against establishing a timeline. I think, frankly, that is uh, a that is good for, for, for everyone involved to have a clear sense as to what the expected timeline is. Everyone just has to understand that there are variables that are beyond our control. I think Mr. Rousseau pointed out several of them. I would agree wholeheartedly with everything he said because I think there are, there are two objectives here. One is, and, and to be clear, in response to some of the, the public comments that have been made, there is no one in the administration who does not feel a sense of urgency to get students in school. The suggestion that anyone does not feel that sense of urgency, frankly, uh, 
lacks an understanding as to the work that we are doing on a daily and nightly basis. That urgency is here. However, there are variables that are outside of our control, and I don't want anyone to suggest that we are communicating that we are somehow going to establish control over, over them in the coming days, because that, that will not happen. But if the, if the timeline is laid out, we will do everything we can uh, to adhere to it, but there, are, there is machinery that we cannot build, and there are reports that we cannot write, and when we have that information, obviously we will, we will share it. Thank you. Do we want to, Mr. Milichewski, do you want to pull that screen up one more time? We can. So if we're moving to like one week cycles, br bringing three, like bringing multiple grades into the elementary school at the same time is a lot. But I, I think we also suggested that seventh grade would come forward a week. Oh no, they, oh. They changed that. So uh, we need to delete the eighth grade block on October 19th and eighth grade would start on October 26th. I, I don't, I mean, I, 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 don't, I, I don't agree with that. And that's just, okay. I'm sorry, just me personally. So I guess we can maybe take a vote. I mean, starting kids, you know, our, some of our students close to November just, when we're starting others on the 5th and 13th, just it's just tough pill to swallow knowing that our air quality came out just fine. Just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's not simply about air quality. Um, it's about being able to get people into the building safely and being able to sustain that, those routines. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes practice and it's going to take support. Um, and it's not like we've got piles of support people kicking around to deploy across eight buildings. Like there's just, there's a lot of motion that has to happen to bring these kids back safely. And if we get it wrong, like we're, we're all going to end up home. And I just don't want to see that happen. Like I would rather us be careful and ramp in than throw everyone in a building and be home in two days, which is, which has happened elsewhere in the country. I mean, it's just, I, I would like us to go in fast and stay safe, but I just think there's a pandemic going on and I'm not sure how we do that. I don't know that other um, folks have been successful in that. No, I, I hear that argument too. I just also know that some districts have done hybrid and not a staggered hybrid and they're you know we don't know how they're 
they've done in, in Massachusetts. Obviously, they start to, started today, but a lot of districts have K through 12 in, you know, on a, on a hybrid schedule and didn't stagger it. So I, I understand staggering it. I, think, I find that important. I understand your points, which is why staggered hybrid is what I voted for initially. I just, to stagger it too much as well as just leaving some of our children not back in school till November. And I just have a yeah. hard time with that. No, I know. I, I get it. I mean, I think the other option is to, to give two week cycles and bring more people in, in two week cycles. I, I feel like I'd rather bring people in weekly, but they, we just, we can't bring a lot of people in all at once, I guess is sort of the struggle that I'm having with condensing the cycles down to weekly and not changing the, the number of people that were rolling into the building at any given time. Just looking at our um, calendar. Cause if we did, if we were able to accomplish this and get our K um, one and two, two grades, back on the 13th, we have a meeting on the 14th to assess a bit. And I think, I think we have the capability of, of get, of doing this. Um, assuming that we don't have a surge or anything like that, which I hope wouldn't come this early, but. I don't know how anybody else feels. I, I like what I see on the screen myself. Yes, I think it looks great. I think it looks good too. Do we need to take a vote? I, I would move this this forward, understanding the point, the arguments on both sides. I would move this forward for a vote. Second. Roll call. Before we vote, um, what about the contingencies that qualify this? Um, I, I can't say yes to this unless those contingencies are part of the vote. Absolutely, the um, county metrics and obviously the state map will be a condition of this. Uh, so when I think about our um, community, the approval of our community and local metrics, I think about the finalization of what we looked at for the first time tonight. I don't think of the map from the state. It's that the map from the state is not good enough for us to safely bring kids back to school. So for me, it's the creation and completion of building readiness checklists at all of our buildings and the approval of our community and local health metrics. Those things have to be in place for this to work. Mayor, point of information? Member McLaughlin. So uh, through the chair, Member Graham, are you asking for an addendum to this motion that those are in, or do you, are you asking that we vote on the metrics before we vote on this? I'm not sure what, what it is you're asking. I'm asking that this motion to approve this calendar also contain language about these other things so that it's, and frankly, that there is a go, no go date um, in there as well. So I don't, 
I'm not ready to just vote on this calendar without the qualifying things that we've been talking about tonight. So you're important. Okay. So through the chair, member Graham, you're asking for an addendum to the motion. Is that what I'm hearing? And if so, do you have something you can share in the chat or. Well, I'm not sure what the motion is. So maybe that's the first step. What is the motion that we're, we're voting on? Motion is amended to approve the flow chart that is before us tonight, as well as the, and you further amended that to make it contingent on um, the metrics that were drafted on, on Friday with our small committee. Mayor. Member Vandekloot. Uh, in terms of that metrics, um, we have a meeting set up on the 21st. The, the reason we were having that meeting on the 21st was strictly to uh, work on dates for the subcommittees. However, if we needed to approve the metrics, because we need to come back and take a look at that again and do um, the refining work that Jenny's suggesting, um, that would be the time to do it because, because she's, you know, if we're making it that we need, we need to have that in place. Um, I'm saying that as much as we, none of us are enthusiastic uh, in particular about another long meeting, but we could add it to that meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, my only comment would be that, um, the 21st gives us two, literally two, two school days to get it done, all of the metrics. And we would definitely need to rally, um, rally the troops. And as we're waiting for that final piece of documentation, also from Desi, we don't have that yet. Um, so I'm just saying like, we're, we're waiting on one more piece of information and I don't know if we're going to have it by Friday or not to be prepared. Right. Um, right. So we could either change the date of that meeting. So we could do the two things at once. Okay. Is one, another alternative. So we could make it later. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay. Um, tw 23rd. Move the 21st meeting to the 23rd. 23rd. Okay. Is that a Wednesday? Okay. That's a Wednesday. Does that give you enough time? Do you want, is Thursday better? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, gives five days. I'm just trying to put it before the 28th. That was my. Maurice, what works better for you, Wednesday or Thursday? I'm here seven days a week. I know. <laughs> Um, I, I actually think maybe, uh, I think we could do Wednesday, Wednesday the 23rd, and hopefully we will have received um, additional information by then, and we'll have an opportunity to meet with, um, you know, including Marianne O'Connor, the B Board of Health, and set that up. Um, Member Graham? Um, I typed a motion if um you want me to share it that i think contains all the parts 
that we just talked about, just so it can be clear for everyone. Sounds good, thank you. Okay. Um, hold on just one second. Um, so the motion is to approve the staggered hybrid calendar provided that the following conditions occur. One, the administration creates a building readiness checklist and opening is contingent on the completion of the checklist. The school committee approves the community health and local operations metrics that will govern hybrid operations. And three, a go no decision, go no go decision is made no later than October 1st to begin the staggered hybrid plan with kindergarten on October 5th. I like it, thank you. There's a motion on the floor. Yeah. Um, roll call. Uh, Jenny Graham. Yes. Uh, Kathy Kretsch. Yes. Melanie McLaughlin. Yes. Mia Mastone. Yes. Paul Rousseau. Yes. Paulette Vanderkloot. Yes. Mayor Brianna Lungo Kern. Yes. Seven in the affirmative, zero in the negative. The paper passes. Thank you, everybody. Point of information. Point of information, Member McLaughlin. I'm sorry, what was scheduled for the 21st of, uh, of uh, I mean, what was scheduled? The 21st scheduled? was a special meeting to discuss subcommittee scheduling. So we're gonna push that to the yeah. 23rd. We'll discuss subcommittee scheduling meeting as well as the metrics for approval. And what time is that? We're moving that to the 23rd on, at what time is five o'clock? Five o'clock. Anytime is fine. Thank you. Be it resolved that the school committee review the student handbooks for determining any outdated or inappropriate policies offered by member Vandekloot. Yes, uh, I attended the uh, Black Lives Matter rally on Saturday and there was a question about a particular policy um, which um, I think we need to review. I wanted to put it out and articulate it tonight so that when we had that meeting next week to set up um, the, uh, what, what, what subcommittee meetings we're going to have, we would, um, my idea was that we would send it to uh, the, uh, probably the handbooks would ultimately go to uh, rules and regulations, I guess. So uh, I articulated it as a separate, I understand we had an overarching um, uh, motion a few weeks ago, um, which you could consider this to be a subset of, but it's specific. And um, so uh, I would ask that we send this to the rules and regulations subcommittee after approval. Second. Uh, motion by member Vandekloot, seconded by member Graham and member Rousseau, roll call. Uh, Jenny? Yes. Kathy Kretz? Yes. Melanie McLaughlin? Yes. Mia Mastone? Yes. Paul Rousseau? Yes. Paul Paulette Vanderkloot? Yes. Um, Brianna Lungo Kern? Yes. Seven in the affirmative, zero in the negative. Paper passes. Uh, be it resolved that the school committee via the curriculum subcommittee review the social studies curriculum to determine areas of deficit relative to a comprehensive black history curriculum offered by member Vanderkloot. Yes, uh, so of course, as I articulated in the motion, I'd like this to go to the curriculum subcommittee. Uh, again, I wanted to articulate it specifically um, so that uh, we would 
have a focus and begin this work. And most most importantly, so we'd set a date for for the meeting. Um, again, I understand that it's part of a bigger comprehensive look, um, but it, it, it is a curriculum piece, a specific curriculum piece. Um, Member McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'd like to know, I'd, I'd like some explanation or differentiation on, we you know, voted for the approval of an anti-racism curriculum. Um, and so I'd also ask that um, the superintendent, if we are uh, able to have a presentation from the anti-racism task force leaders about what the process is on the anti-racism task force, that would be helpful for the next meeting so that we can understand where we are, but also this anti-racism curriculum that we've been talking about. Um, so this is a little bit different because it's looking at the uh, member Van de Kloot's, um resolution is a little bit different because it's looking at, I believe the existing curriculum with specific regard to uh, history. And I assume is expanding um, the history to include, um, uh, well, we can talk more about, well, this curriculum subcommittee can talk more about what that actually includes, but I wanna know how this is different from our uh, resolution for an anti-racism curriculum in our school. Um, so I, may, may I? May I? Oh, absolutely, sorry, here, I'm, oh, here. Saw, I'm on here duty. <laughs> I saw this as a subset. Again, I was doing it um, as because I attended this, this meeting and there were some very specific questions about uh, or things that um, being in the curriculum that we didn't have. And I actually had some very interesting conversations already with teachers and sort of found out that we did have one piece of it, but it was in another uh, another course. Um, and and I know that some of it, so part of it is question is what is, um, uh, what is med for teaching and what's in the curriculum strands? And is it that we're leaving something out or is it that the state has left something out? So it just seemed like this was the opportunity for the curriculum subcommittee to really get a little bit in depth uh, and understand um, some of the uh, curriculum pieces relating to this this more. Mm -hmm. It was for me. It's a it's a starting part, but it's definitely a piece of the other work that needs to happen. Member McLaughlin, and then if Dr. Ed Vincent wants to speak, yeah. yes, thank you, thank you, uh, Member Van de Kloot. So I guess um, that's the question I have: is when is the work starting on the anti-racism curriculum as well? And so. Um, I think it's great that we're starting specifically with history and in something very tangible with the curriculum subcommittee, but I, I would also, you know, propose a friendly amendment that we set a date for identifying um, what the anti-racism curriculum that we voted on is actually going to be. And I think clearly we need the anti-racism task force to be established um, to be able to work with us and support us on that. And I know that one of the heads of the anti-racism task force is no longer with the district. Um, and all of this was created uh, at the end of last year during COVID. So I think it would be very helpful to get an update from the anti-racism task force. Um, and then also to get a date on the calendar with the curriculum subcommittee um, for that as well. So I would make a friendly amendment. I would propose a friendly amendment to this uh, resolution um, through the chair that we uh, expand uh, to, uh, to include uh, the anti-racism curriculum uh, date with, 
with the uh, curriculum subcommittee as well, please. Um, Dr. Edward Vincent? Yes, I wanted, um, when Member McLaughlin uh, stated at the next meeting, I wanted to say if I, I would be um, better prepared to present that to the committee at our second October meeting and have it listed because um, I am in, still in uh, consultation with our former staff member, um, Dr. Mulligan, and she is still trying to support this work um, with us. And so um, with all of the demands of um, trying to get ready for today being the first day of school, I have not yet been able to, um, the anti-racist group has met. However, I have not been able to, um, you know, give the amount of attention that I wanted to be able to give to that work because I wanted to make sure that we were ready for a strong opening of school. Um, I also have um, Dr. Chiesa online um, who could also speak a little bit to the curriculum and work that is being done just in response to some of the questions. And um, we definitely would be able to report out to the committee at our second October meeting. Thank you. Point of information or uh, point of clarification. Member McLaughlin. So thank you, Superintendent. I'm fine with that date. Um, I guess what I think would be helpful in the interim is to uh, get our committee members information on the task force specifically. I think that, not I think, I, I know it's very important to have our um, um, BIPOC students of color, uh, I mean, our BIPOC students be participating in that task force. I want to infer that 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 is happening and what the constitution of that task force is. And so I know that the mayor is typically, uh, the chair is typically the uh, responsible party for identifying what that task force looks like and want to ensure that we are being very thoughtful about the task force, much like the vision committee. So um, would again, I don't know if that is part of the presentation or that happens in between now and the presentation, but just want to make sure that we are thinking about those things and including those things. So I'd be happy to talk with you more um, about them, but those are, those are concerns. Um, and then just specifically to the, to the friendly amendment to the chair, um, whether that's an option or not. Thank you. Thank you. Member Russo. Thank you. I'm, I, I, I'm feeling a bit like this is, this conversation is getting confusing. Um, an anti-racism curriculum is a curriculum designed to counter racism and to, you know, work to undo all of that. This is about a specific curriculum that we already own, the history or the social studies curriculum. I just, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here, but curriculums are effectively controlled by a few big companies and they use Texas because they're such a big purchaser to mark up and remove all the good stuff and make it into essentially a very conservative set of curriculum that is available to purchase. There, there aren't big companies shipping curriculums that actually tell real history or include the stuff we all wish that they did include. It doesn't exist because the big curriculum makers wanna print one version of their US history book and they send it to the people that will not buy it if it contains things that are offensive to them. So the 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 issue and the, the resolution as I understand it from member Vanderclue is figuring out how to deal with our social studies curriculum to it, it effectively to 
figure out what's wrong with it, what to layer on top. And I am quite aware, and I've had conversations with Dr. Chiesa that this is going on. And she's given me some very explicit and good examples, but it isn't an option as I understand it to go buy a good curriculum because that doesn't exist because these companies have nearly monopolies and they send them to Texas, the most conservative folks that won't buy it if it actually makes Texas look anything less than you know, the shining star. So, um, but an anti-racism curriculum, as I understand it, is about doing the work of, of anti-racism. And so, you know, decolonizing and taking out the, the, taking a lot of that stuff out of the current curriculums isn't really the work. It's not there is the problem. Some of it's not, does need to be removed, of course, as well, but mostly it's that it's just missing. Um, so, um, you know, but history, social studies, the English, what, what books we're picking and all that other stuff, um, even math and science, all of those things need to be looked at. And we have to physically do it ourselves, do the work ourselves or work in collaboration with other educators in other places, because there isn't just an alternative curriculum we should have or could have bought. Um, and I see a bunch of hands up, so I'll stop talking. Thank you, Member McLaughlin and Member Vanderclue. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think it does get confusing for decolonizing the curriculum and um, and also having an anti-racism cur curriculum. So there, you know, they are two different pieces of a curriculum. One is a curriculum that already exists. The other is looking at potentially either creating um, an anti-racism curriculum or purchasing an anti-racism curriculum. However, um, my concern is that we are not, and the question I have, I guess, is who is doing this work? Because my concern is, and I saw a great quote on Twitter earlier today, and if it's, if it's that we have a bunch of white people doing this, then we're doing it wrong. Um, and that's what I wanna make sure we're not doing. Um, and so uh, that's all my concern is, is wherever this is going, whether it's to the curriculum subcommittee or wherever else it's going, whether we call it anti-racism or decolonizing or whatever we wanna call it, we have this task force that we have established uh, to advise us on these things. And so I wanna ensure that they are advising us on these things and that it is not a group of white people deciding what this is going to be or not it's member, Buffen, uh, member Vandekloot and Ms. Chiesa uh, member Vandekloot just got to unmute yourself the intent of my motion was to send it to was to put it on so we we as we were thinking about dates we put on a date to look at specifically the social studies curriculum strands from the state um and quite honestly, um, you know, we've gotten into a more complicated discussion. That was my intent. If that doesn't seem to work for you guys, it's 8.55. I thought we were on track to get out of here by nine o'clock. We've had meetings that are too long. <laughs> you know, let's, that, that was my intent. Pretty simple and straightforward. Gotcha, I got it, yep. Um, Dr. Chiesa, would you like to comment or you wanna wait till committee, but go ahead. Um, I can certainly wait till the committee. I want to say I'm excited to have more involvement in this. Um, we are revamping the social studies framework completely. Um, as we, as you know, we have a new framework that we just adjusted to last year and are continuing to. So I think the timing is, is something we're doing within our department. As Mr. Russo said, 
um, we take this very seriously and it's um, something we've been working on in the ELA curriculum as well as the social studies. I just want to be clear and I won't belabor the point because I'm sure you're all tired. Um, to us, a program is not a curriculum. So our textbook is not our curriculum. We use a variety of materials. What I've been trying to do over the past few years is to pull in a lot of primary sources, a lot of different materials to give different lenses. And as we work to continue to revamp the curriculum, um, this is really at the forefront of all of our teachers' minds. So I think that I would completely support both initiatives. We are supporting it. We've done it for a couple years now and um, would love to move forward. But I just wanted to be clear, we have a variety of different sources that we're pulling from to make sure that we are showing lenses from all different um, ethnicities, gender, sexual orientation, and certainly different viewpoints beyond just the textbook, because I think we can all agree that um, they are quite flawed, as Mr. Russo just stated. That's all I wanted to say, though. Thank you. Perfect. I look forward to future conversations. Mayor, thank you. Thank you. Yes, Member Vandekloot. Just to Melanie's uh, point, I, I will certainly, absolutely, if this was, is to in some way or shape or form come to the curriculum subcommittee, which I lead, will absolutely make sure that it is inclusive of people in our community um, who are uh, interested and involved. Uh, um, and in fact, I mean, that's where, that's where this discussion started um, in this past weekend. So just want to reassure everybody of that. Thank you. Um, motion by Member Vandekloot, seconded by Member okay. Rousseau. Roll call. Excuse me, point of information. We Wait, didn't discuss whether the, there was no discussion on whether the, that might have requested. Yes. Yes, Melanie, we'll include your. Thank Okay, I lost Melanie, but you got that, Miranda Clute. Well, I, I think she's asking whether the issues that she was, um, uh, whether her friendly amendment was acceptable, and I absolutely, it's acceptable. Okay. okay for approval as amended, roll call. Uh, can I? Can we have the motion read, please? What? Excuse me. Um, via resolve, the school committee via the curriculum subcommittee review the social studies curriculum to determine areas of deficit relative to a comprehensive black history curriculum and amend member Vandegloo. Did you write the amendment down? No. <laughs> member McLaughlin, can you just give us the amendment one more time? I don't have it. Sure. I can try that the amendment is that the um, anti-racism curriculum initiative is also scheduled uh, to go or goes to the curriculum subcommittee um, as part of these schedules that we are creating uh, for our subcommittees um, and that it's, you know, additionally a part and parcel of this. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, so on that motion, Jenny Graham? Yes. Kathy Kretz? Yes. Melanie McLaughlin? Yes. Mia Mastone? Yes. Paul Rousseau? Yes. Colette Vanderkloot? Yes. Brianna Lungo-Kern? Yes, seven in the affirmative, zero in the negative, paper passes. Um, we have two condolences, if you bear with me. The Medford School Committee offers its sincere condolences to the family of Mary Cormio, mother of Richard Cormio, electrical teacher at the Medford Vocational Technical High School, and 
also the Medford School Committee offers its sincere condolences to the family of Teresa Glioni, mother of Mary Lou White, retired Medford public school teacher, mother-in-law of John McGonigal, assistant Medford High School baseball coach, and the wife of the late former city manager, John Glioni. If we all may take a moment of silence. Thank you. Motion to nine o'clock. Motion to adjourn. Second. Second. Seconded by Member Rousseau. Roll call. Uh, Jenny Graham. Yes. Kathy Kretz. Yes. Melanie McLaughlin. Yes. Liam Stone. Yes. Paul Rousseau. Yes. Paulette Vanderkloot. Brianna Lungo Kern. Yes. 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 Seven the affirmative, zero in the negative. Meeting is adjourned. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night.